Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This is for UFC Vegas 67. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast and all episodes of the Dogger Pass Podcast are brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match up to $100 on your first deposit. Cody Saftik on the line. Producer Megan on the sticks. We're back. It's been like close to a month, Cody. Lots of uh, crazy stuff happened in the MMA streets. I mean... People can go on Twitter to go about it. I'm not going to waste too much breath on this program. You know, we have people who watch on TV in Canada, and it's like, if they're not on Twitter, or if they are on Twitter, they're probably aware of it if they're in the community. If they aren't, then it's it's meaningless to them. But, uh, yeah, if you fish around at Paul Shag, at CJ Saptic on Twitter, I'm, probably, I'm sure you'll probably find what we're referring to on that front. Um... Yeah, nice little time off. What is it? Between cards, it's like 27 days or something like that. You know, we, we complain about cards sometimes and say, oh, you know, this card stinks, this one stinks. It's just like, but then, you know, a couple of weeks go by and you get that itch and you're like, ah, I, I wish there was some like really dusty UFC card on this weekend that I could get some money down. Some would maybe call that gambling addiction. Um and they, th- those some people may actually be right. But, uh, yeah, fun, fun little time off. Uh, one quick thing I wanted to bring up, and this kind of has to do with the thing that we're not even really talking about, but uh, I did join a year-long contest. They've been running for seven years. It's the uh, MMA analysis crew. They're on the hammer.bet, um, which is run by, like, Rob Pozzola and a bunch of those guys. Um, those guys have been running the pool for years. You have been on it in the past. I've been on it uh, a few times as well. Rejoined this year. It's $50 to enter. I pinned a tweet about how you can enter if you're interested in that. If you're not interested in that, totally understandable. You know, sending other people's money is, uh, is a scary proposition these days. But I have personally guaranteed that if these guys turn into you know thieves and try to pull that type of thing i'll i'll cover the entire uh prize pool i really don't think it's going to come to it they all have full-time jobs and do this type of stuff for fun um and they know that like if they did try to run away with the money it's like i would find them because that's that's what i'm all about but uh but yeah cody that's that's all my house cleaning right now you got anything to say no, actually, I played in the second ever Toemaster. I played in three of them in total. I played in the second ever one. I think Kyle Marley won the first one. I was like, I'm in. Played, finished third. They paid me out right away. Played in the next one, finished seventh. I think you got like your entry money back or something for seventh place finish. And then the year after that, man, I got screwed. So I'm going to play again this year. Like me and Arab talked about it. We're just going to field in a team and split the two of us. But they don't open it up two, three days out to make your picks. Like, literally, it could be seven or eight hours before the event sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. They just don't open it. So, like, a guy like me who's busy, most people who's busy, I just want to set the picks on Monday or Tuesday. I don't want to wait until Friday before they lock in these lines. So, I finished fourth, and I missed two events. And I emailed them my picks before the event started. And I was like, here are my picks. But they were like, sorry, man, you didn't enter it. So I what? didn't get them in, and I would have won that year. So I, I boycotted them for the next two. I haven't played in Toutmaster the last two years. 
But I'll admit it was pretty fun. It was pretty fun and they are trustworthy. It's my own bad for not updating it and checking it every 10 minutes. But come on, man. Like when you're when you're doing stuff on the go and you got shit on the go, man, just like set it on the Tuesday or something. I think my they, only grief. It's a, it's a good it's a good game otherwise. Don't get me wrong. Love the game. Love the game. It was fun. And I'd love to win it officially, not finish fourth and complain. I want to be a man. I want to win it outright the, the proper way. I think back then it was Jerry who was running it. And, you know, he had a whole bunch of other things on the go. Now it's Wes and, uh, and new Sean that are, that are running it. So um, it's under new organi- or organization. They ran it last year. Everyone got paid out within like a few days of the, of the final event of the uh, UFC calendar. So... Yeah, I'll be in it. I think they usually drop like the the picks thing on like Wednesday nights or maybe Thursday. Um, but yeah, all of those questions can be directed to them. I don't have the answers. I am backing it if they turn out to be sleaze balls. But I've known these guys like ten years on this oh, app. It's um, a group of I, I know that it's not really. I'm willing to take the risk because I know it's not going to happen. Anyway, how about we talk about some fights, code? Let's do it. All right, we got Nasruddin Imavov taking on Sean Strickland. Strickland stepping in on very short notice. Uh, obviously, he was in the main event a month ago, which is kind of crazy that he's stepping up and in um, with Kelvin Gastelum stepping out. These guys are fighting at 205 pounds here. I think the weight is kind of in, intriguing. One, obviously, because Strickland's coming in off the couch, but he's a former 170, or he used to be able to slightly make 170 pounds. But Imovov, my biggest concern with him in a five-round fight, why I was considering Gastelum, is like I wasn't too sure that this guy could fight five rounds. Um, didn't end up putting any money on Gastelum whatsoever. Gastelum hurts or does something to his tooth. Has to pull out of the fight. Um, I have a lot of questions about this fight. Uh, Strickland, you know, he throws a lot of jabs. He'll, he'll probably win on volume, but we've seen more and more with the judges in this sport now they're they're crediting you a lot more on very effective damaging strikes than you know fishing or throwing out a whole bunch of jabs um over the course of 25 minutes i'm gonna ev- lean ever so slightly towards nasruddin imovov he's been getting ready for this exact card i don't know what strickland's really been up to um you know there was the christmas holidays after his last fight and now he's fighting you know at 205 I don't know how many hours he's been putting in the gym over the last month uh, since the loss of Jared Cannonier. I'm leaning towards Imovov, but it's not a fight that I'm rushing to get money down on right now. What about you? Yeah, I'm not rushing to get money on the Russian either here, Paul. I, I think uh, there's a lot of hurdles for Imovov to overcome. So first and foremost, I'd not, I was not going to pick Kelvin Gastelum, but uh, I'm picking up what you're putting down, man. Imovov's a guy that may may have questionable cardio. When you look at his UFC debut against Jordan Williams in the third round, he's noticeably tired from teeing off on Williams. He's been having the fight go his way, but again, just the pure work rate causes him to tire out. And then obviously the Phil Hawes fight, he could have beat Phil Hawes on two occasions, has him rocked, has him stunned, very tired, can't quite follow up. So no doubt he's still young and he's improving. He's getting better. MMA Fight Factory Paris have got him in excellent form and, and he's been on a career best win, a uh, little streak so far. 
But uh, you look at the wins, they're all outside of top 15 guys. He's got Ian Heinish, he's got Edmund Shabazian, he's got Joachim Buckley. Beats these guys, looks good doing it, but again, he's fighting guys outside of the top 15 of the division. What's more concerning for me is that here's a guy that is known as the Russian sniper. Excellent strike, you know, pieces up Jonathan Monier prior to coming over to the UFC. Known for his striking abilities, that's how he's going to win these fights. But now he's relying a lot more on his wrestling because he's got low striking numbers. Excellent striker. But not someone that's going to really wow you and dazzle you with the with the output. Uh, his fight with Joaquin Buckley, right? Fifty-one significant strikes landed over fifteen. His his fight with Shabazian and Ian Heinish. It's a little unfair to him because he's getting finishes in those fights. But again, one has to worry if he was going to keep his foot on the gas and fight hard as he did. Would he not tire out? The thing with Sean Strickland is two good things going for him. One, he's a pretty durable guy. I mean, outside of a, a spinning heel kick to the face and an Alex Pereira knockout. The guy's chin's generally held up. I mean, he just fought Jared Kennedy a month ago, got hit like 140 times by one of the heaviest punches in the game, and again, withstands to everything. So there's durability there. So if Imovov's going to go and fight a good fight, he needs to fight it for a full 25 minutes, which I'm a little bit uncertain of. Second thing is Imovov likes mixing in the wrestling recently. Strickland's just a big guy. He's unorthodox. He's hard to take down. He spent a lot of time in Temecula, California with Dan Henderson and Sam Alvey and a cast of characters known for their takedown defense. And he himself, not that he's fought a whole lot of pure wrestlers, which Imovov's not, but I think his takedown defense is good enough. So if this thing's going to be a 25-minute striking affair, what we do know from Sean Strickland, a little bit lackadaisical at times, but the numbers are going to be there, Paul. He just landed 152 on Jared Cannonier. His fight with Jack Hermanson, 153. His fight with Uriah Hall, 186. These are not just high numbers. These are sickening high numbers, Paul. You know, you analyze the sport. His numbers are as good as anybody. Now, are the judges going to look at, well, he's landing a lot of stuff, but not necessarily those big impactful shots? Maybe. But by the numbers, he may go out there and triple up Imovov. For every one shot Imovov lands, Strickland should be landing a couple. Now, you go back to, has he been training? Probably not. Is he coming off the couch? Probably. Can't make 85 on short notice. Didn't even offer to make 195 pounds on short notice. But Sean Strickland walks around at like 225. So he's still cutting 20 pounds to get down to 205, and he's going to be a big guy. 6-1 versus 6-3, heights Imovov's way, but the sheer size, I think, is going to be towards Sean Strickland. So, 50-50 fight, main event, greasy. Of course, the UFC is going to get you with one of these coming back. I felt way better about it when it was Imovov Gastelum, but now I've kind of been having a, a, a wrench thrown in my plans. I think I'm going to lean towards Sean Strickland. think this one probably goes the 25 minutes, if not like a late fourth or fifth round stoppage by Sean Strickland. But, uh yeah, first main event of the 2023 season, and uh, I think uh, we're on opposite sides. But we can both agree that it's not exactly a, a spectacular spot, and the line pretty much dictates it's 50-50 on both sides. So uh, maybe not something you want a ton of investment in, unless you're using it to hedge it. Yeah, the only reason why I even lean towards Imovov is because Strickland took 137 strikes from Jared Cannonier that last time out. I imagine there was some bruising, some it was probably a tough couple weeks coming off of fighting one of the heavier hitters in the division. Um if I could counter that point, Paul. So um, that, like that is my concern is that is that maybe maybe Imovov actually cracks him and you know Strickland wasn't completely healed and he comes up and in and uh and lays a bit of an egg to to cash a paycheck basically. Um but like yeah, my- I'll be I'll be more looking at this live 
And it's just like, if we get into round three, it's just like, I'm going to be more interested in putting money on Strickland. Like, I'm probably more likely to put money on Strickland in this fight. I'm going to pick Imovov straight up, but like, literally, like, I have no interest in betting this fight. If we get into round three and Imovov's showing some signs of tiring out, I know Strickland can go a hard uh, 25. So, yeah, I'm really, I'm very, very tossed up on this one. I'm hoping on two things. One, his Jack Hermanson win split decision, but he should have been unanimous. And then his last fight, I thought he won, although it was a close fight. Don't get me wrong. It just depends how you're scoring it. I thought he won. So I'm hoping he goes in here with more of a sense of urgency of, I need to actually put an exclamation point on this. But to your point of him taking 141 significant strikes against Jerry Cannonier and what that would do to him, um, you remember the movie Happy Gilmore, right? In between seasons, he decides to go to the batting cages, right, and get there and toughen up, okay? Because you got to toughen up until the next season, Paul. And he sits there and he takes the baseballs. And does it hurt? Oh, it hurts. But he's using it to toughen up. Sean Strickland, yeah, he's a nut job. He's a nut job. This guy spars hard all the time. That fight with Jared Cannonier, that's just him getting tough. And I'm hoping he brings that toughness in here because he involves not a walkover opponent and has actually been preparing for this fight. But uh, we got to go back to the fact that Ian Heinish – Edmund Shabazian, these guys are not on Sean Strickland's level. Sean Strickland's been fighting Alex Pereira. Sean Strickland's been fighting Jared Cannonier. Sean Strickland's been fighting the best guys in the world, whereas Imovov's been beating top 15, fringe top 15 guys at best. So I, I just think that there's a, it's a 50-50 fight on paper. The Lions giving us a 50-50 fight. One guy is very competitive against the best guys on the planet, and the other guy looks pretty good against guys that are not in the top 10 of the UFC. So, again, that, that to me, I think, is the is the deciding factor. That is fair enough. All right, we got Don, uh, Dan Ige taking on Damon Jackson. Minus 120, Dan Ige, plus 100, Damon Jackson. What's your take here, buddy? Yeah, okay, so I've, everyone knows me. If you've been watching the show for a long time, uh, for some reason, I just I end up betting Dan Ige a bunch of times because I know how talented he is, right? And he's got the Ali Abdullah Z swing, and he's in Las Vegas, and he trains with the best guys ever, and, uh, this, that, and the other, sure. But, I mean, yeah, he can wrestle, and he's got a hell of a good chin, and he can scrap at his best. You know, he's a good little fighter. The problem is he's got the best manager in the game, and they just do him <laughs> no favors. Look at this murderous run of guys, right? That he's winning, right? Beats Edson Barbosa in a very close competitive fight, but I had money on Barbosa. I'll accept the loss. I thought he won. Calvin Cater, right? Smashes Gavin Tucker in in 22 seconds. But then Chang Sung Jung, Josh Emmett, Movzar Evloev. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like he's losing. He lost a Korean zombie. What kind of bounce back fight is Josh Emmett? To which he gives him a pretty decent fight. He outstrikes Dan Emmett 70 to 60, and he scores the lone takedown of the fight over Josh Emmett, a credited wrestler. Unfortunately, the big shots are coming from Josh Emmett. He rocks Dan Ige. Again, I'm not I'm not saying he didn't lose the fight. He did lose the fight. Now you're on a two-fight losing streak, and they're like, okay, he needs a bounce back. How about undefeated Mobzar Evloev? It just doesn't make any sense. So to me, maybe he doesn't get to show the best of himself because he's always fighting the best guys out there. But again, I know how durable he is. I know how crafty he is. BJJ Black Belt. Wrestling, yeah, I think he wrestled at like a, he was like a state champ in Hawaii. Maybe like that that level. Not really big, big credentials collegiately or anything like that. But when you're training in Las Vegas with such good training partners, and you took down Josh Emmett, like he's got good takedowns. It's just, again, at the elite level, Danny Gay keeps coming up short. Thing with Damon Jackson, though, is that Damon Jackson is a very tough guy, a fellow BJJ Blanc belt, but he doesn't really shine in one area. It's not like he's some great striker that's going to be able to pick Danny Gay apart 
the way that a Korean zombie or a Calvin Cater were able to, or an Edson Barbosa, for example, right? He doesn't got that same wrestling, like a Mavzar Ivlov, to just drown him on the ground. And in terms of grappling, like, yeah, they're both good grapplers. They're both black belts. If that's a null point, and this ends up being a striking battle, yeah, I'm kind of favoring Dan Ige. This ends up being a wrestling match. Nothing really suggests to me that Damon Jackson is just going to take him down and destroy him. And when you look at Damon Jackson's last couple fights, Charles Rosa, that's a tailor-made fight for anybody, right? He actually gave up two takedowns to Charles Rosa, which is a big no-no. But, I mean, for the most part, he takes him down. Only lands 41 significant strikes. The next fight with Quan Kirk dominates him, but had landed 32. The fight with Daniel Argueta. Daniel Argueta took the fight on a week's notice, moved up a weight class, mm-hmm. jumped right into the deep end, and gave this guy one hell of a go. He only landed 32 significant strikes and two takedowns over the course of 15 minutes. And then his last fight with Pat Sabatini, uh, I'm going to get the story wrong, I'm sure, but was it his dad that died, like, right before? He took the fight anyways? And he just I went out there like yeah, a I'm not passionate sure. man on fire and smashed through Pat Sabatini. Yeah. So that's a credible win, dude. He knocked out Pat Sabatini that quick. That's badass. But what I'm getting at is when you look at the other fights, 41 significant strikes against Rosa, 32 against Kamala Kirk, 32 against Daniel Guetta, and he's relying on some takedowns in the mix. Dan Ige, meanwhile, he's fighting the best guys in the world and, again, still puts up 70 against Josh Emmett in a takedown. Still puts up 80 significant strikes against the Korean Zombie. Still put up 84 against Calvin Cater, even though that was a five-round fight. Still went out and landed 79 significant strikes against Barbosa. When he fights elite-level strikers, he still scraps them and puts up numbers, right? Damon Jackson is not an elite striker. He'll put up the same numbers, if not more. I think he'll win the striking exchanges. The wrestling, again, you're not Mavzar Evloev, so you may get a takedown or two, but Ige, I think, is going to survive, pop back up to his feet, and just make him work. And then over the stretch of the 15, have the higher work rate, land the better shot. So (laughs) this guy burns me all the time. I'm going to take one more shot here. And I think the line is very fair. Like, it's close-ish. Um... I'm going to take the shot on 50K Dan Ige. Yeah, I already did take the shot on uh, Dan Ige. I parlayed him with uh, Cousin Umar and uh, Rebecca because those lines were kind of on the move at another book. And I'm like, I don't know how else I'm going to play these guys. So I'm going to get in before the line move. Um, So Ige was minus 125 on that ticket. Umar was minus 500 on that ticket at that point. And Rebecca was minus 600. On that ticket, it all comes out to plus 167. Yeah, I think we're buying low on Danny Ige and we're buying high on Damon Jackson. The Pat Sabatini win, uh, frankly, I, re- I feel like that was a little bit more of an outlier. The Argetta fight was tooth and nail, very, very close. Round three, he was tired. Like, he, you know, he dug, dug deep. He's a, he's a consummate veteran and professional, but he's tired in that fight, man. Like, and, and you know, you look at, like, the stats in that, and it's nothing very impressive. Um, Ige's insanely, insanely durable. He's going the full 15 against some of the best in the division. And I think if this fight stays on the feet, it's not even remotely competitive. Like, Ige has went toe-to-toe with some of the better guys in the division on the feet. And he's at least competitive out there. Um, Jackson's got to get this fight to the ground early and often. And he can get the fight to the ground and control from those positions. Can he do it for 15? And if whenever they're on the feet, I expect Ige to be pressuring forward and landing big shots. Not sure I can say the same for Jackson. So, yeah, I think it's a good spot for Dan Ige to have a rebound here. He's, what, lost four of his last five fights, but he's fighting some of the best guys in the world. Um, And let's face it, Dan Ige, if he was fighting the guys that Jackson was fighting, uh, 
he would have been on a big winning streak right now as well. So, yeah, Ige. Evan for, Tucker is talented, right? He smoked yeah. him in 22 seconds, and then they just threw him back to the wolves. Like, yeah. Uh, what could you do? Yep. Well, I, I feel like he gets back on track this weekend. All right, we got Punahele Soriano taking on Roman Kapalov. Minus 155, Soriano, plus 135, Kapalov. What's your take here? Yeah, probably the hardest fight, I think, on the card to get a good read because both guys seem to have at least some skill, some potential, and then don't quite live up to it. Roman Kopilov, when he was in on the Russian regional scene, damn, dude, this guy could definitely fight. You know, good size, good length, uh, good boxing, good kicking techniques, and very aggressive, right? Goes out and generally drags his opponents into later waters and puts them away. A guy that's known for his volume, a guy that's known for his cardio. Comes to the UFC, and you haven't really been able to see that. One fight in 2019 against Carl Roberson, he looks awful. Uh, Roberson takes him down, dominates him on the ground. He gassed out. He, he actually lost the striking exchanges, too. It's a terrible performance. He takes two years off, and he comes back against Albert Durayev. He looked a lot better, you know? His cardio looked better. His strength looked a little, little bit better. His takedown defense looked a little bit better, but not good enough. Durayev mostly just smothered up in that fight, took him down twice. He landed some damaging blows on Durayev. But just, again, his get-up game is just too weak. His takedown defense is too weak. At this point, he's pretty much a write-off. He's never going to be a top-10 guy. He's never going to be a title challenger. He just can't wrestle. He can't grapple. His striking, still not even all that good. But one has to just think back to what he was capable of and consider that he's only 30 years old, 31 years old. Like, may maybe he could get back on track in some way. And then that last fight with Alicio DiCirico, I thought he did. Like, he comes in as the underdog in that spot. DiCirico's not great by no means, but is a serviceable veteran of the division. And uh, he did put a beating on him. In the first round, he's landing a lot more stinging blows. Very subtle with the leg kicks as well. You see DiCirico noticeably start to, like, step off on that lead leg. It starts to redden up right around the calf. But they're just, like, small little touch, touch, go type techniques. And then he just revamps it up, vamps it up, right? Lisa DiTrigo don't want to strike no more, so he's shooting takedowns. Takedown defense looked better. His cardio looked better. Physically, he looked better. And then he just puts a mullin on him like a minute into the third round and puts him away. So that's a solid win. And that's solid by his standard because he's talented and he just hasn't been showing you nothing in the UFC. That win over DiTrigo looked a lot better. So to me, if he's going to go out there and fight to the best of his abilities, he could be live here. Soriano, meanwhile, just seems like volume kind of escapes him. If he had a better wrestling game, I think I'd be more inclined to go with him. What stumps me is that I thought he was a wrestler, right? He was like, you know, again, one of these like Hawaiian state champ kind of guys. Mm -hmm. Took down Jamie Pickett four times on the contender series. Gassed out in that fight. Didn't look all that good, but got four takedowns. His debut against Oscar Pachota, he got a takedown and he knocked him out in two minutes. He's shown zero wrestling since then. Against Dusko, he didn't need to. Dusko just kept running right into the, the, the counter shot every time. But against Brandon Allen, you're getting soundly outstruck on the feet. And he attempted zero takedown against Brandon Allen. Did not want to go to the ground with him. Nick Maximov, a junior college wrestler, took him down 11 times and absolutely dominated him in the wrestling exchanges. And then his last fight against Dolce Lungbula, Lungbula, judo black belt, took him down twice on two attempts. So like, I don't think his wrestling is really all that good. And the fact that he never shot one attempt against Brandon Allen shows that maybe he's even reluctant to go to it. What he does have is just a big left hand. He's got big power in his hands, and he looks to set up. Doesn't set it up. He's waiting for that one-and-done shot. One-and-done shot. He might jab left hand. He might, he might throw a one-two just to try to feel out and then try to land the big power shot, but there's nothing beyond that. I don't see the punching combinations out of him. We know he's got big power. Cardio doesn't seem great. The volume doesn't seem great. If he's not obviously going to wrestle against Kopilov, then he's going to create problems for himself. So I, I do see a world where Kopilov can just 
keep the foot on the gas, land those leg kicks, take the wrestling away from him by compromising the lead leg. And then just again, working with the jab, working with the right hand, working with the combinations, hit him to the body and just slowly go ahead on the scorecards and then pull away. So again, looking at this line, it's close, it's competitive, but uh, underdogs are going to come through. And I honestly do feel like Roman Kopilov is the first interesting underdog the in the order that we're talking about them. First interesting underdog. So I think I'm going to take a little action here on Roman Kopilov plus 135. I think the reason why Soriano doesn't wrestle in a lot of these spots, Cody, is is that he's worried about gassing. And that is my biggest problem with him. And that's what I see kind of in line with you is I don't know if I'm going to bet it. I think the line's probably relatively close to accurate. At best, maybe it's 50-50, but I'm not too confident. I could definitely see Cole, uh, Soriano coming out, putting on a good performance, landing massive shots, and maybe even getting him out of there. But Kopalov hasn't been knocked out in his career, um, which is, you know, if we have to go a full 15, Kopalov seems very, very live. Curious, actually, now that you actually mention it, what is him by decision? That's pretty, uh, I see a plus 430 out on the market right now. That's not a horrible look. Um, we'll see weigh-ins and, and all of that stuff as we go along. Yeah, I mean, I've been a guy who had backed uh, Soriano in a whole bunch of spots, and frankly, like, I don't like him yeah, round that round three against Brendan Allen. Like he's still there. He's still present in the fight. He's obviously very tough. He's durable, but he's re- like the body language is just horrible. He doesn't have the same sting on his shots after about seven and a half minutes. Sometimes he tries to front run and he had some success earlier on with knocking guys out in the first round by front running. But if you get through the first seven and a half minutes or so with him, it's like he seems to fall off of a cliff. And, yeah, I think that's why he doesn't wrestle. He may actually – I mean, he was just outmatched by Maximov. That wasn't really particularly competitive. Um, he spent most of his time, you know, defending takedowns. But, uh, but yeah, I think the reason he doesn't wrestle is because he knows that he doesn't have 15 minutes of gas to implement that type of game plan. If he was able to do that, if he's able to do that in this spot, because, like, that's where you can um, take advantage of Kopalov, I think he would – you know, he would definitely pay off his price tag of minus 155, but I don't have faith in it. So considering Kopalov by decision for, you know, a little sprinkle later in the week, nothing added to it yet. But, um, yeah, we're kind of on the same page with uh, with Kopalov versus Soriano. Moving on down, we've got Ketlin Vieira taking on Raquel Pennington, minus 125 Vieira, plus 105 for uh, for Rocky Pennington. What's your take here? I don't know, man. I, I don't know. This is a tight spot. It's a tight spot because both of them are capable of one thing and then capable of not showing up whatsoever. And in Ketlin Vieira's case, like I'm leaning towards her to get the win. She's coming off a pair of five-round fights. So as long as her cardio is good here in a three-round fight, I have no reason to believe that she shouldn't be able to land the better shots on Raquel Pennington. But... If you just look to talk about her last three, let's say, the Yannis Kunikea fight where she does absolutely nothing. Yannis Kunikea just off of her back was just landing short shots. Ketlin Vieira landed a takedown in each round, lied on top of her, proceeded to do nothing, got outstruck 47-7, to 7, even though she was on top the entire time, and lost. And people tried to debate it like, well, she was on top. She didn't do nothing, right? So if she's going to come out and lay an egg for me, I just don't want my money on it, to be frank. The next fight against Misha Tate, 
That's a tough one. So Misha Tate, by the numbers, I was struck her like 122 to 113. But it's like, yeah, Misha didn't have any zip on any of her shots. Like whenever she stepped in, Caitlin just ate everything she threw and then returned fire and was really stinging and was really hurting her. I thought that was a fairly good performance for her. Definitely did win the decision over Misha Tate. But that was the moment Misha realized like, yeah, my days of a, as a competitive 135 were done. And then she attempted to drop down to 125. Still hasn't found the success. So take that win over Misha Tate, which is probably her career best. A little bit of a grain of salt, anyways. And then that last fight with Holly Holm, I don't know how she won that fight, Paul. Like, I thought she pretty clearly lost. Most people I had talked to and interacted with thought she had pretty clearly lost, but it goes back to that argument of damage versus control. So Holly Holm is definitely controlling her. She controls her for 10 minutes of the fight, but well, and outstruck her for the matter, but it's like, you know how Holly Holm strikes. It's a lot of, you know, touch-and-go techniques, you know, small little kick here, a little jab here. It's, uh, as Robin Black would have said back in the day, it was just flim-flam stuff, whereas Kellen Vieira is landing the better blows, and so she wins the decision. But this has got greasy decision written all over it. I just, one, I don't know what the judges are going to favor. Are they going to favor damage or control? And two, what's Kellen Vieira really going to do in this spot? I think her best path of victory is probably controlling Raquel Pennington up against the cage. But Holly Holm just easily controlled her up against the cage. So is it just going to be a reverse of fortunes? And Raquel, meanwhile, she's just like super all over the place as well. Like at her best, she's a girl that challenged Amanda Nunez for the world title. It did not do very good, uh, but still had gotten to that elite pinnacle level. Her own fight with Misha Tate, she dominated her. That was a good fight for her. In recent years, she's on a four-fight winning streak coming into this spot. But she just doesn't really seem with it for the most part. And that last fight with Aspen Lab, big on the numbers but did give up those takedowns early, right? Did get controlled for a lot of the time. So I think this thing's going to play up up against the cage for 12 of the 15 minutes and go to decision. I just, I'm, I'm not sure who's the stronger in the clinch. Raquel at her best is very physical in the clinch. And Ketlin Vieira is just a bigger fighter. So I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. My official pick, not that I've told you anything informative <laughs> in this breakdown, because I have no idea. I really yeah, don't. But the official pick will be Ketlin Vieira. But it's like, you know, there's fighters that you can trust. There's fighters that you have a good idea of what version of them is going to show up. And then you've got this spot here where I, 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 I couldn't tell you. But I do think it's going to be a clinch warfare up against the cage for the most part. And I think Ketlin Vieira is going to get the better of that. But I can see it going the other way big time. So probably the PRP pick because or just pass. You know, if you're not a degenerate, just pass. You don't have to bet this fight. I see a couple people dropping a couple units on it. Maybe you see something better than me. And for the record, they're putting them on Ketlin Vieira. So at least I'm on the right side of it. But I'm not seeing anything that would make me uber confident. I'm not really any sort of confidence whatsoever on this fight, to be perfectly honest, Cody. Um, I see a lot of the points that you make. I kind of could see a lot of, you know, standing cage control. Neither one of them is like a great wrestler by any stretch of the imagination. And yeah, Vieira hasn't really, I haven't really seen like the, you know, the, you know, finishing ability with her grappling if she does get the fight to the mat. So uh, I'll lean ever so slightly. I think I'll lean ever so slightly to Rocky Pennington. You know, 114 significant strikes put up against Aspen Loud last time out. That's not so bad. Maybe she could set up her bulldog choke, which she likes to work on um, when they're hanging out up against the cage like that. I don't know if she's going to be so successful just muscling around. Definitely a fight I'm interested from a live betting perspective. Um, just because if this fight... Yeah, I mean, I feel like right now our biggest question is like who's going to be stronger in that 
clinch position up against the cage? I don't really have the answer for right now. But within like two and a half minutes of watching them, I'll have a much better feeling of how this is going to play out. Maybe able to uh, grab something that way. Um, But yeah, uh, for the purposes of the show, I'll pick Pennington. But uh, uh, no way I'm getting money invested in it early. And like the over is like juiced already, like minus 350 plus or minus 400. So it's like, yeah, good luck with that. You're not really getting any sort of meat on the bone. Speaking of no real meat on the bone, we got my boy, Cousin Umar. Uh, he's a minus 1,000 favorite taking on Rowney Barcelos. Barcelos is plus 170. Your boy, Barcelos, plus oh boy. 700. I mean, I think Cousin Umar is the future champion of this division. Am I stunned by the minus 1,000 against a consummate professional in Rowney Barcelos? I'm pretty surprised. I saw, like, I added it to a parlay at minus 500. I thought... I don't really know what else I'm going to be able to do with this, so I'll add it to Rebecca and Dan Ige. I really didn't foresee it getting up to minus a thousand at some books. Like, it's it's pretty pretty wild, but like fair is fair. The guy's been hit ten times in three UFC fights so far. Um, obviously, last time out, seventy four to two in significant strikes. Kid's a stud. Kid's a stud. He's training with some of the the baddest, most you know, most technical dudes on the planet. He carries the Nurmagomedov name. I don't think he's actually like, they all call each other cousins. I don't know the relation, but like he's been in their, you know, in their inner circle for, for quite a long period of time now. Kids, the truth. Rowney is a very, very stiff test, I would say, but we've seen some issues with Rowney. I think a lot of people are, you know, backing Rowney. The price at this point is like, I'm not going to fault anybody for taking a shot on Barcellos. Don't get me wrong on that front. But like, uh, outside of the last fight against Trevin Jones, which I thought was probably Rowney's most complete performance, you know, against Victor Henry, didn't really pursue the wrestling whatsoever, and then got like, you know, con- or dominated, frankly, got walked down and, and outstruck on the feet. Timur Valiev, like, kind of let that fight get away from him. Had nothing for the in the wrestling department there. Um, he hasn't really been taken down, but he hasn't fought somebody who has this pedigree of wrestling either. Um, I think Cousin Umar wins. Shocker. Um, I've already bet him, but, uh, yeah, does he win inside the distance? Does he win by decision? I still haven't even made my, my, my mind up on that. I've got him in that parlay. Probably all I'm going to get invested in. I wrote about it recently in one of my tweets. I was like, you know, what proves that this game has gotten harder, the markets have gotten sharper, is like it took until like Habib's seventh or eighth fight in the UFC where he took on Daryl Horcher, who was coming in on super short notice for him to eclipse like minus 700. It's like Umar's getting this, that type of treatment, like pretty much straight out of the gate. And then now he has like a big step up in competition and the books are not backing down like Umar's the truth the price is super super wide but frankly it's like I don't know one out of one out of ten two out of ten like two out of ten at best for Rowney I think I don't think the the line's all that far off to be perfectly honest Cody Umar's gonna win he's probably gonna make it look easy 
Uh, yeah, maybe. This is another one like you were saying with the last fight. You'll probably know two and a half minutes or three minutes in what it's going to look like. Because if Umar gets him down, then I think that's the big thing here. But yeah, you can make a solid case for Rowney Barcells. I'm not just saying this as a Rowney Barcells nut hugger, but listen, you got Cousin Umar who's live and die by the takedown, right? Taking on a guy that hasn't been taken down in five years in the UFC who rocks a 93% takedown defense, who is a seven-time member of the Brazilian national wrestling team. Yeah, like Rowney Barcellos can wrestle. Not only that, he's a BJJ black belt. So because of Umar, again, and I, I've tried to tape study as much as you can, and it's just the same thing. Well, I guess the takedown, sure. But he doesn't look super comfortable on the feet. Like his distance of range in terms of landing his strikes, not great. He's waiting for that opening, 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 duck under. Duck under, once he gets a hold of you, takes you to the ground. And the guys he's been taking down, Sergey Morozov, solid enough wrestler. I wouldn't say great wrestler, but solid. Takes him down five times. But Morozov's able to get back up, right? I mean, he only gets three minutes of ta- of, of control time over Sergey Morozov, despite the five takedowns. Does choke him on the second round. Don't get me wrong, kid's an absolute animal. You know, Morozov's at least able to get back up. So he's not like Khabib, where maybe he just needs the one, and then he'll be able to cling on to you and hold you down for the entire time. If Rowney's able to continuously make him work and get back up, then at least it leaves it subjective to the judges. Well, Rowney got back up. Land some shots. His boxing's much better. Not only that, he's got a beautiful lead uppercut right through the middle, right? Or sorry, a rear uppercut that's going to be there waiting for that takedown. So I think it comes down to the wrestling. If Umar gets the takedowns the way he always gets takedowns, then he's going to give him, then he's going to probably just hold them down, go through rounds, win rounds, win the decision. But Ronnie Barchels presents just way more problems than anybody else he's fought to this point. And when you look at Nate Maness's last time out, oh, 72 to 2. Nate Maness is fighting at 125 pounds right now, right? And a guy that's not even top 15 of the division. He's a tough old Kentucky boy who's down to fight absolutely anybody. Guys get massive cojones on him. But for the most part, like kind of limited in his opposition. I would say with Rowney Barcellos, where does he lose? Where does he blow the fight, make that mental that mistake? It's not grappling. It's the striking department. It's himself letting himself fall behind on the numbers. When you look at the Victor Henry fight, not that there's anything he really could have done to keep up with that absurdity, but uh, he gets outlanded uh, 134 to 181. Huge numbers. Umar's not going to land those kind of numbers. He needs the wrestling. All I'm saying is if the wrestling doesn't work, if it's not on the table, what's the plan be for him? That he's going to strike? Is he going to beat Ronnie Barchelson in a 15-minute striking battle? Is he going to do just enough striking and mix in the takedowns? Like, I, I don't know. As I'm thinking about hitting Rowney Barcellos on a little small play, you know, maybe it's the PRP play. Maybe it's that the line is just way off. Maybe it's that I love me some Rowney Barcellos, always have. I thought he was looking a little bit washed, but his last fight with Trevin Jones, he looked good. As I'm right about to do it, it just dawns on me, Paul. It dawns on me right then and there. Nurmagomedov or not? Undefeated or not? By the way, Khabib's not even in his corner. Got to count for something, right? All of that stuff aside. I got a guy that was a seven-time member of the Brazilian national team versus a Russian from Dagestan. Paul, he's going to get the takedown. He's going to get the mm-hmm. takedown. I can see it happening. And if I bet Rowney, then I'm going to sit there in front of the TV all excited. And you know what's going to happen? <laughs> Nurmagomedov is going to take him down and ride him like a small pony. And it's just going to be devastating. So <laughs> I'm jumping on the other side. However, there's no money to be made on the money line. So how do you attack this thing? I honestly think... By decision. Umar Nurmagomedov, super talented, don't get me wrong, but he'll have to work a lot harder in this fight. He'll have to be a lot smarter in this fight. I don't think Rowney's going to get submitted. I don't think he's going to get knocked out. Never been knocked out. Been submitted once in his career against Tricky Mark Dickman eight or nine years ago. Long time ago. I think he's durable enough that he will survive 
to the final decision, right? Lose the decision, but survive. So I'm just going to take Fight Goes the Distance by minus, minus 200. The Nirmaga made of by decision. I, didn't actually I see minus that. 200s I on the Nirmaga made of by decision. Uh, fight, the fight goes to decision. Fight goes to decision is like minus 215. So, yeah, if he pulls off a shocker, if it ends up staying on the feet, yeah, that's 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 not a bad look um, if you want to go about it. Um, what, I, what I actually like on prize picks, I took um, – it's not my favorite play. We'll talk about my favorite play on prize picks. It's moved a little bit. I dropped it to the guys in the DOP racing family but didn't want to post it on Twitter publicly because I didn't want to mush the line before the show started. Um but yeah, I've got Umar over two and a half takedowns. I like it, don't love it. Um, I just think, yeah, I think it's going to be... I think this fight does go 15 minutes, and I think Umar very likely gets takedowns in every single round, whether that's three or five or round he's able to get up multiple times and we get to like seven or eight, I don't know, but two and a half seems like a pretty reasonable way to clear it. Um, that's really all I have to say about this. I already teased... Um, the next one for the prize picks purposes, we got Abdul Razak Al Hassan taking on Claudio Ribeiro minus one ten on either side. Close fight, a fight that you know you'll see on the board there. Fight time is set to five minutes. Um, when I dropped it in the DOP Racing Family group chat, it was forty five point five significant strikes for Abdul Razak Al Hassan. The guys cleared that two of ten times in the UFC. This fight is lined to get finished in the first round like it's like minus 250 or something to the under one and a half rounds 40.5 is still too high um you know it pays i suppose to be in the dop racing family because the the boys in there i i dropped it at 45.5 it's like abdul razak al hassan at the best of times he doesn't land lots of significant strikes. He's cleared it, yeah, twice. And last time out was one of the times that he cleared it. He cleared it by literally one strike in a three-round fight. So if this fight finishes inside the distance as it's supposed to, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan is going way under the 40.5 uh, significant strikes. Um, as for how the fight plays out. I'm, I'm not an Abdul Razak Al-Hassan guy. Guy's got, guy has absolute power. It looks like Claudio Ribeiro from what we saw in Contender Series. Pretty similar. He went out there, threw four significant strikes, folded the guy he was taking on, and, and that was all she wrote. Um, I've seen some people talk about how Abdul Razak Al-Hassan is going to be able to lean on, you know, he's, he's got a judo background. He's going to be able to lean on the takedown a little bit. He was able to take down Joaquin Buckley at what, three times last time out, but Buckley took him down five times. So it's like, that was just a strange fight all the way around. Um, I'll pick Ribeiro because I just hate Radul, uh, Razak Al-Hassan's cardio, you get outside of five minutes, this guy falls off an absolute cliff. So I'll lean towards the the uh, newcomer. But yeah, the way I'm getting invested in this fight was on prize picks with the under 40.5 significant strike. I think somebody gets finished inside the distance. And if this gets finished in the first round or the first seven and a half minutes, I really struggled to see how Reb, uh, <laughs> I keep saying his full name, Al-Hassan, uh, gets over 40 and a half significant strikes. Like I would be pretty stunned if this get, if this fight gets finished in the first five minutes, it's like, there's no way he's getting over 40 and a half significant strikes. So Ribeiro will be my ever so slight lean from, uh, from that perspective, but I like it a lot better on prize picks this week. What about you? 
Yeah, there's certain guys like Jim Miller. You just always say their whole name. You don't call him Jim. You don't call him Miller. He's just Jim Miller. But in this case, it's a three. It's a three-worded name. So Abdul Razak Al Hassan. I find myself doing the same thing all the time. Definitely a mouthful. Uh, you know what? I think I'm actually gonna edge him ever so slightly in a fight that you probably don't want much exposure on. But hear me out on this. So when you look at Claudio Ribeiro on the regional scene, there is not really a whole lot to see. Like, I don't think he's all that good. He wins a whole lot of fights in the first round. Keep in mind, nine and seven opponent, two and zero opponent, eight and six opponent. Then he runs into this Kelly's Albuquerque, right? That's his fight right before the contender series. It's a five round fight versus an opponent that was twenty four and twenty, very experienced, twenty four and twenty, but super undersized. And like, come on, he's got twenty pro losses. Like, he's not exactly a world beater by any stretch. And that's a three round fight. Kelly's Albuquerque wins. Like, he backs him up the entire time. When you see his Claudio Rivera. Backs himself up straight to the cage, hands low, backs himself straight line up into up against the cage. 10 15 minutes of the fight, and uh, even though his takedown defense is decent against a much smaller man, lands a bunch of these little Travis Brown style elbows. He's got no ability to get his back up against the cage, he's got no sense of urgency. He does get taken down by the smaller guy, he's losing the fight. And then in the fourth round, they're both completely gassed, but he wins. And in the fifth round, this Kelly's Albuquerque guy's just way too tired to go on. He lies on the ground. He stares at the ref. The ref says, stand up. Doesn't give them the no moss, but the ref just calls it off. Again, no way he looks good in this fight. No way this is the guy that's going to jump into the UFC and make any type of splash. And then all the other wins, they're all first-round finishes against low-level guys. So how's he going to do in the contender series? Well, he kills the guy. He absolutely killed Ivan Venezuela, Mexican fighter, destroyed him. But again, how good was Ivan Venezuela? Because it was one leg kick, turned the guy out in like a 360, and then he smashed. Dude's head was way up in the air, did a 360, and got smashed. It was a low-level fight. But here's what's more concerning to me, Paul. Highlight real KO, that's all good. Don't see his cardio. Don't see his ground game. Don't see his ability to get his back up against the cage. You just see a super cool-looking KO because it was a super cool-looking KO and a nasty KO at that. But how much real substance was there behind that? But here's what's more concerning to me. He weighs in for this fight against Ivan at 181.5 pounds Mm -hmm. for a middleweight belt. That's a good point. He came in at 181.5. Why? What would be the reasoning for that? Well, either he has no idea how to cut weight and somehow cut five pounds too much, or he's not that big of a guy. Mm -hmm. He's not that strong of a guy and there's one thing about Abdul Razak al song he's like really strong he's stout he's muscular he's got big old legs on him they call him judo thunder he's got the black belt he's got big power the kind of power that if you see how Kelly's Albuquerque's landing on this guy you let Al-Hassan land on you like that now it's gonna be a short night if you let Al-Hassan control you against the cage and get takedowns it's not gonna be good for you I just don't think that there's enough real substance from him. I know you, you said that the, the line is definitely towards under five minutes, but again, I'm not totally sold with that. He smokes guys in five minutes that are low level. Al Hassan, meanwhile, you, you mentioned earlier, and I'm not a big fan of his. I am not a big fan of his. But you said earlier the whole, like, you know, buy low, sell high. I kind of feel like that's Al Hassan's case. Keep in mind, he's got wins over Saba Hamasi twice, who's actually a good fighter. A split decision, Amariak Madov, who just fought for a million dollars. A 43-second knockout win over Nico Price. Very credible. But the losses are all legit, man. Munir Lazez outworks him. Tough guy. Chaos Williams, guy that had huge power, lands on him. You know, bad luck. Jacob Malkoon took him down eight times. Jacob Malkoon takes down everybody to eight times. Nine times, ten times. That guy's a freak, man. I don't know how he just does it to everybody. 
uh, and then knocks out Alicio Dietrico in 17 seconds. Solid victory. And it was a good fight with, with Joaquin Buckley. You know, he showed offensive wrestling. He showed that he could fight 15 minutes. He showed that he could land a little bit. His leg kicks look good. He seemed a little more dialed in. 37 years old, never really going to get over that hump, I don't think. But I, I think people are buying a little too much into the Brazilian. So I'll go Al Hassan in a fight, again, that could go either way and could be very sloppy and very greasy and you'll regret betting it. But got to make a play and uh, – don't got to make a play for this show. Got to make a pick. Got to make a play. Got, and I'm going to go with Al Hassan. Yeah, I, I was saying that the uh, the under two and a half round or one under one and a half rounds in this fight is like minus two twenty five. Uh, fight. I take the over one and a half rounds too. That's what I'm going to take here. Over well, one I, and a I half. I hope rounds. you're wrong because then my prize picks total is uh, we we could still win. We we could still win, but it becomes a little bit dicier. The longer this fight goes, um, this thing could also last. He's just 10 a, seconds. He's a super, like, super sure. low volume guy sure. in general, right? Like even fights that he yes. goes to decision, he barely clears that number. I liked the forty five point five. They've adjusted forty point five. Still like it, but not as much as I liked it. Um, you know, when I dropped it into the DOP Racing family chat. All right, we got to move on down. We've got Matus Rebecki taking on Nick Fior. Minus 800, Rebecca, plus 545 for Fior. Fior seems to be, uh, I mean, he's going to be longer. He seems to be a bit of a jiu-jitsu guy. I watched some of his fights. Yeah, he fought that guy like Jay Ellis, who you've like seen, Oh yeah, you know, absolute can that like a lot. He's fought a lot of guys. The guys has over 100, 100 fights. And like, I mean, Fior fought him twice for whatever, for reasons unknown. <laughs> <laughs> he finished him by rear naked choke the first time, by KO slash TKO the second time. I mean, Jay Ellis is what's his current record now? He's 16 and 106. Why do people continue? Why does a guy like that continue to fight? I'll never understand. He must just love love it. Yeah, the guy hasn't won a fight. <sighs> I mean, he fought something like twenty. This guy still UFC just fights veterans. so much. Fought Colby Covington. He fought like a ton of good guys. Yeah, he is the can that everyone crushes on their way to the show, basically. Um, so he's fought the, the basically this Fior guy has fought absolutely nobody. Rebecca, we saw in Contender Series, and I mean, just aggressively pursuing those takedowns. This guy's strong as an ox. He's only five foot seven, but like he is built. He's a little. Uh, you know, he's a little, a little tank. Um, I think eight minus 800 for a guy making his UFC debut is always super, super wide. But like everything I see from this guy, it's like, I think this guy's going to be around for a while. He looks like a, a problem in, in the making. Um, I took the over two takedowns. Just because of the fact that, like, I took the over two takedowns on prize picks, mixed it in with the Al Hassan um, a little bit. Just because Fior seems to have, like, a jujitsu background, maybe he can just, like, survive down there. Or maybe, ah, I struggle to see him actually really getting back up. Two, two may actually be a very, very sharp number. I scattershotted, basically, on prize picks with the Al Hassan, uh, Rebecca. Nurmaga made of NASA Mento takedowns and Eubanks takedowns all to the over. 
I think those are all pretty decent lines. I think the Alhassan's significant strikes was way too high. So I mixed and matched them to, you know, to have a, a few different angles on it. But I don't know. Rebecca looks like a, like an absolute powerhouse. He should absolutely roll here. He's taking on a guy who seems to be his best part of his game is, is grappling. It's like Rebecca went out there against Lydio uh, and just like eats a massive head kick to start that fight. Doesn't really phase him at all. You know, maybe that means that his like striking defense is a little bit of a question moving forward, but like I don't think that's going to cause a problem in this fight in particular. The guy just charges forward, takes him down at will, smashes him, like basically like half suplexes him. Um, this guy's a unit. So that's why like, he's on my, he's on the parlay with Umar and uh, and and Dan Ige. I was just trying to beat some of the steam um, during this extended layoff. He should absolutely cruise here. Does that mean he's going to be a champion in the future? I don't know. We need to see a lot more from him. We want to. You need to see more wrinkles to his game and stuff. But he has the skills to absolutely make this fight look very very easy. So. Not going to get too cute with this. Rebecca is obviously the pick. What about you? Rebecca's either going to smash him and look great, or he's going to get Bartos Fabinski, man. Like, he's got to watch his P's and Q's on the ground because Nick Fiore is a very good grappler. He's actually a BJJ black belt at a Henzo Gracie affiliate gym in New Hampshire, and all of his wins, for the most part, are by submission. He's not done anything as a pro, but nicely enough, as an amateur, his last two wins – Ali Zebian, who's 9-2 and two as a pro right now, and Nathan Garib, who's the current CES champion. So he subbed both of those guys as an amateur. He's good. Thing is, is that he's Tyson Chartier trained, Tyson Chartier managed, Tyson Chartier coached. Tyson Chartier's got all of the connections down in the Southeast region. So yeah, he, he, you don't, he's not going to have to overextend himself. Now he fights Jay Ellis in his pro debut. All right, it's your pro debut. You fought a 100-fight veteran, that's something, but it's Jay Ellis. He chokes him out. The, he fights Jay Ellis in his second pro fight. Jay Ellis lost seven fights in between those two <laughs> fights, and Fiora was fighting him back to back. <laughs> but, but anyways, the only reason he fought him is uh, the original guy pulled out. This I, whoever it was, Shaquan Moore. Shaquan Moore gets hurt, so Jay Ellis is like, "Let's just do it again." And he and, and he beats him. And then yeah, three and nine, eight and four, fifteen and thirteen, five and nineteen. But he subs them all really quickly in the first round. So, again, he's one of these guys that you don't actually know how good he could be. And for the record, like, how does he get these fights to the ground? His timing on his wrestling is very, very good. He's got a good duck under. He's very fast. And as soon as he gets the fight to the ground, it just looks very good. I will admit, Jay Ellis even got up one time on him. So, like, that's not going to, you know, cut it the longer you go. But, again, I think he's just racking up cage time, racking up experience, trying to make the best go of it. This uh, really notable win on his record is this Andre Borges, who he subbed a minute and 31 seconds. If you check that guy out, he's actually pretty good. So, you know, one of these tough Brazilian type opponents. I think this kid could be okay, but he's got a long ways to go. And similar to a Randy Costa, when Randy Costa jumped into the UFC, he's coming off no wins on the regional scene, and now you're expected to cut it in the UFC. And you might, and you can win fights. But it, you're learning on the job, and it's very, very tough. And with Rebecca, it's a tough guy to learn with because you mentioned he was a fire hydrant. That's exactly it, dude. This guy's a little tiny Greek pillar of a man, uh, short, stout, 5'7", don't matter. He was giving up like 10 inches in the reach department in that last fight against Rodrigo Libio. As you mentioned, got kicked right in the face. Didn't seem to phase him all that much. 
and then dumps him. Libio did get back up. As soon as he gets back up, he goes for a ride and goes back down. Like, it seems like Rebecca's one of these guys that's going to be very strong, very physical, and he'd be able to just smash, smash, smash over and repeat. But uh, again, this is another guy that's not one-dimensional in the slightest bit. You have one guy that's fighting guys that are three and nine and 16 and 100. Mm-hmm. Okay, consider this for Rebecca. Seventh, second pro fight, guy was 10 and seven. Pretty decent. Only lost. He was 4-0 at the time. But more impressively, he's got a win over Marion Zlokowski. Okay? Marion Zlokowski is the current KSW 155-pound champ. He's a very good martial artist. Two fights later, he beats Dagir Imovov. Yet yeah, Dagir Imovov, that's Nasruddin Imovov's older brother, right? Mm-hmm. So, then he beats Magomed Magomedov, not the Bellator one, but all the same, 12-2, and two, pretty beastly. Beats a 30-12 and 12 opponent. Beats an 11-1 and one opponent. That one took 48 seconds. Smashes a guy in 15 seconds who was 10 and 4. Jumps on the contender series against Rodrigo Lidio, who's 12 and 2 and smashes him. Eh, he's battle tested already. He's mm-hmm. not learning on the job. He's not figuring out, oh man, this guy, you know, got me in a bad spot. What do I do? It's like, ooh, he's fought in really good guys and looks to be quite good. And the fact is, he's got no neck on him. So, what are you going to grab a hold of to choke Paul? See? Oh, no, no. Oh, no, no. Nothing. But uh, yeah, if he gets these takedowns, it's just going to be rinse and repeat. So, I went right off Fior. Like, he's got a decent triangle choke. He's got good submissions. He is a black belt. It'll be crafty. We don't know what to expect out of him. Like, this is a a debut, kid. Hats off to you, but I got to go with Rebecca. Yeah, not even not even the, uh, not even just the, the fact that he has no neck, but, like, he only has, like, 66-inch reach. He's, like, he's got short, stubby arms. Just, like, you know, good arm- luck <laughs> Good luck trying to find an angle and, like, and, and getting an arm bar on this guy. The, the one last thing I'll say about I was... They watch rewatching like a couple times. I actually watched it because I was pretty impressed. Rewatching the uh, the Lidio fights, like some of his transitions on the ground, it's like, yeah, this guy's thirty years old. As you said, he's uh, he's already battle tested. He's already slick. The guy's, you know, so many times now we say like, well, this guy. There used to be like UFC ready. It's just like. Rebecca is UFC ready, like what we used to say was UFC ready five years ago when, you know, there was a one or two cards a month and it was just the best of the best. Um, Fior, from what I see, is like current day, we need a guy to fill in uh, the fights. We'll see where both of their careers go, but like Rebecca does look like the truth. Minus 800 is is pretty wide. That This is what happens when the lines are out for a month and, you know, MMA betters have nothing nothing better to do. You know, lines get steamed. And I think there was, like, one book that, like, opens up all of the lines. They usually have, like, pretty significant limits on those openers. Well, this time around, I don't know if it's going to be normal moving forward. They did not have those limits. So, like, a lot of, like, sharps absolutely just smashed some uh, early lines. And that's why you see so much crazy line movement this week compared to others. Uh, moving on down, we've got Javid Basharat taking on Machus Mendoka. Uh, Basharat, a minus 325 favorite. Mendo- Mendoza, Mendoka, Mendo- Mendoza uh, is plus 250. Uh, what's your take here, buddy? I, I think Javid Basharat is probably play of the week, right? Minus 350, it's a little bit. Yeah, I think, I think at minus 350, that would be considered pricey. But considering that the other big favorites on the card are all... Minus 700, minus 600, minus 500. They're kind of in that much higher range. I feel like that in that discussion, there's some more value on, on Javid Basharas. When, when I look at Matus Mendonca, not a whole lot I like. Here's another guy that, that comes up on the Brazilian regional scene, fights a lot of lower level guys, 
guys that never went on to be heard or seen from again, and smashes them. Yeah, he smashes these guys. That's fair. He runs into Pedro Nobre in his fight before the Contender Series. Now, Nobre is, you know, a good veteran of the Brazilian regional. This will be a good test for him, and it's a good fight. He looks very limited to me. His takedown defense, not very good, okay? He gives up easy little trips over and over again. His striking, a little bit wild. Defense, not all that good. He sticks with it. But I, I, I don't think that this is someone that I would consider elite. Now, to his credit, he takes two full years off before he comes off against uh, Ajim on the Contender Series. I want to see his takedown defense if it's improved. I want to see his cardio to see if it's improved. Because both of those things are big holes in his game. The thing is, is that he smashes Ajim in like 48 seconds. And that guy should have never been in there in the first place. He looked way out of shape. He eats one shot on the side of the head and he was all the way out. Again, it's another nasty looking knockout. It's a highlight reel. Dana's going to sign these guys all day. Dana's going to throw them in the UFC all day. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily prepared. And when you look at the regional show tape on him, he's not all that impressive. Now, now, most notably, he tires out. He slows down. And I think Javi Bashrat's going to give him all types of problems. First of all, Javi Bashrat is a much more accomplished wrestler. His entries are very, very good. His timing is very, very good. If he wants to go and take Mondanka down, I think he'll be able exactly to do that. If he chooses not to take Mondanka down, he's going to have to watch for that, that lead front kick right up the middle. But besides that, Javi's got good volume. He's got excellent cardio. If he loses the first round, I'm hammering that live betting line. Because you've seen him struggle sometimes a little bit in the first round. Always makes the adjustments. Always comes through. Now, this is a kid, 24 years old at the time comes over to Las Vegas, and everyone that says that they've trained with him and his brother, stars, right? Aljamain Sterling sparred with them. Damn, this guy's got it. Jake Shield basically quits his job and says, I'm just going to hang out with these guys and train them. They're going to be world champions. What I like about him is you see him on the Contender Series against that Oran Cologne, who was 16-0, and it, it got political. I don't I don't want to waste anybody's time with the political stuff. It got mm. political, and Javi Bashra was just like, all right, buddy, you pissed me off. He went out there. And he absolutely slaughtered the guy. He kicked the shit out of him, right? So now you get signed to the UFC. His first fight in the UFC is Trevin Jones. This is a tough debut. Trevin Jones is a guy that has good wins in the UFC, okay? Serviceable, tough, BJJ black belt, heavy hands. Javi Basharat, close competitive fight. He wins all three rounds. He outstrikes him in all three rounds. He wins a 30-27 decision. Now that last fight with Tony Gravely. So people will remember, oh, well, you know, Tony Gravely got, won the first round. It's kind of a misconception, right? So Tony Gravely probably did win the first round, according to the judges, but it's all because of that headbutt, right? He misses with a knee that looks like it splits open Basharat's head, but it's a headbutt. Keith Peterson notices. He calls a timeout. He brings in the physician to look at it. But for the rest of the round, Basharat's head is bleeding. Now, mind you, at the end of that first round, Basharat ducks under and blasts Tony Gravely to the ground. Tony Gravely, the former you know, state champion out of West Virginia. Tony Gravely, a former... You know, D1 guy out of Appalachian State. A guy that is an American top team representative. Amazing. Not amazing. Very good. Very good wrestler. And Bosch Rogers dumps him to the ground. And then the second and the third round is an absolute beatdown. He just puts it on him. Gravely's got nothing for him. This kid's still only 27. He's getting better. He's had a great chin. He's got good striking. He's got good wrestling. He's got good cardio. It's only going to get better and better for him. And Mendonca, he's there to get taken advantage of, man. I, I think he's had a pretty-looking record built up on the regional scene and a crazy cool KO on the Contender Series. And now he's just getting thrusted into there versus a guy that's got legitimate wins. Who, who would you rather fight? Trevin Jones, Tony Gravely, Matus Mendonca? He's not even on their level. This no. is his UFC debut. He's making his UFC debut, and he's taking on Bashra, who they're building up to be a star. And I would normally say something stupid or ignorant like, 
you know, they're building him up to be a big star because there's a market in Afghanistan. But like, I don't know that there's a market in Afghanistan for the guy. What I can tell you, actually, you know what? There's a market here. I know a ton of Afghani refugees, and they they all support their own. The Canadian fighters that are here that are from Afghanistan, massive support. They want to support their guys. Bashrock could be a big star. And I think he's got the skills, and he's got the promise to do it. And I think they're going to give him those right fights. So barring a crazy front kick up the middle by Mandonka, Barring, you know, Javi Bashrat falls over and blows out his knee or, or something ridiculous of the nature. I think he wins this fight wherever it takes place. So even though the price is steep at 350, I think he rolls here and I'll be picking him. Well, I have big, like, I don't know. The kid looked good on Contender Series. It was such a short period of time that who knows? Obviously, as you mentioned, he's been off for two years before that. He's still only 23 years old. Like, I don't know. I'm yeah, not fair, fair. He may this kid may be like super super legit, but he is taking on a very very good like this is one of the better skill for skill fights on the card, which sounds kind of crazy to say, but like I think there's really I I think both guys have some like decent upside. Um, not sure I'm going to be getting to Basharat from a betting perspective. If I was going to bet him, I think I'd bet him by decision. I didn't really see any sort of like killer instinct outside of the contender series fight for him. Um, he's happy to win his decision, which I mean, he gets paid the same amount, uh, regardless of how it closes out. But yeah, against Trevin Jones, against Tony Gravely, I just don't really see like a potent finisher in him. Um, I'll pick him for the purposes of the show. We'll see how the rest of the week plays out. If there's, and like how the line moves, how weigh-ins happen, all of those types of things. Maybe I'll get to Basharat by decision, which I see out there for like plus 150 right now. Don't mind that. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that this Mendonca kid is... Uh, he, he may lose this fight, but he has some promise in my humble opinion. And if they match him up against somebody who's like, you know, on the lower tier in the UFC right now, I think he absolutely rolls. Um, but yeah, that remains to be seen. Moving on down, we've got Alan Nascimento taking on Carlos Hernandez. Nascimento minus 330. Hernandez plus 250. Your thoughts? Yeah, unpopular opinion, but <clears throat> I think if there's going to be one of these bigger favorites that shits in the apple pie, I'm leaning towards it being Alan Nascimento. So one, two, two things that I've always known, and sometimes I go against myself. Whenever I do go against myself, I end up losing. The rule of thumb, that PRP, that top ticket, who do you trust? You don't put a heavyweight up there and you don't put a flyweight up there, right? There's too much that can happen, too many variables in flyweight and, and heavyweight fighting. The heavyweights, they got the big knockout. They could get gassed out. They could get tired. It gets sloppy very fast. You never really know what to expect. In flyweight, again, there's just there's so much going on. There's so much to be judged. The judges have got a lot to take in. There's scrambles. There's, there's, you know, it's a fatiguing pace. And a lot of the times, these big underdogs will cash through in flyweight fights. This, to me, I think is another one that has a possibility of happening. I like Alan Nascimento, okay? And let's first and foremost agree on that. But the way he loses is generally these close and competitive decisions, right? His fight on uh, contender season against Roley and Pava once upon a time, he landed good striking in that fight. What's important to note is that he went for 1 for 11 on takedowns against Roley and Pava. So he landed some good strikes. It was a scrap-type fight. Striking doesn't look all that good. At least he's got a willingness to engage. But his wrestling was, like, non-existent. Um, his grappling is world-class. He's a training partner of Charles Oliveira, but again, his wrestling just doesn't seem to be there for me. 
Now, in his last two, it has been there, right? I guess Tagir Ulembekov, sorry, not in his last two. I guess Tagir Ulembekov, I guess, taken down four times. And he's throwing up lots of submissions off his back. He's continuously fishing for the arm. He's trying to get the neck. He's trying, continuously trying to work, work, work. So even though Ulembekov's on him the entire time, the guy's work rate in jiu-jitsu is fantastic. But keep in mind, he's on his back the entire time, right? Mm-hmm. Career-wise in the UFC, he's got 20% takedown accuracy. So he loses to Tagir to, uh, Ulembekov, and he lands 25 significant strikes over the course of 15 minutes. It's low output for me. And then his last fight against Jake Hadley, okay? Fight starts. He comes up right. Jake Hadley throws a kick. He catches the kick and falls on top of Hadley. Well, once he's on top, his jiu-jitsu is pretty good, man. So he wins the first round. The second round, it's much of the same. His wrestling's not that good. But he does able to trip him up and get on top. Hadley scrambles a couple times and gets back up. Hadley scrambles instead of just clearing and pushing away, grabs the dude's neck and starts wrenching on it and re-engages him in the grappling. He had chances to back away and strike with him. He chose to grapple him and play into his game. But again, over the course of 15 minutes, he landed 19 significant strikes. So I think his output's just very low in his wrestling's not all that good. The thing with Hernandez is that he's got very good feet. He moves laterally quite well. I know he's not like the best looking prospect going, but just bear with me on this one. His fight with Daniel Baez on the contender series, his striking looks really good. That's that's one of the best fights from that uh, uh, season in the contender series. It was a straight up scrap. They threw down on the feet. Hernandez's cardio looked good. His striking looks good. He sets up his punches well. He moves his feet side to side. He does give up five takedowns. Of those five takedowns, he gives up about a minute 20 of top control. So when he does get taken down, at least in the Baez fight, he scramble, scramble, scramble back up right away. Makes his debut against Victor Altamirano. This is a split decision. It was a close decision. I think Hernandez was the first round pretty clear. The second round is a toss-up. The third round I would have given to Altamirano. It's a good fight. Altamirano does manage to get a takedown about a minute and 15 uh, 15 seconds of top control. So we've seen Hernandez give up takedowns, mm-hmm. and that's going to be his fault in this fight. But he does seem to scramble to get back up. And when he is standing... He throws tons of volume. Good kicks, although I would advise him to kind of beware with getting a, a kick caught here. So maybe use that boxing technique. But he's a good combination puncher. He's got good cardio. He's good at fighting his way back into certain spots. And I think that he's someone that can fight a good solid 15 minutes. With Nasimeno, I like him. Don't get me wrong. But if for whatever reason he goes out there and shoots his mediocre level takedowns and does not get them, I don't think there's a fallback on Swang and Bang. I don't think it's going to go well for him. He needs those takedowns. And whereas it looks good against Hadley that he's coming off a pretty solid little victory, it wasn't like he had shown me a new wrinkle in his wrestling game. It looked like, you know, he was way, he timed it good. He caught a kick. He caught a kick. He trips him up. And then after that, you know, he just forces a little bit of grappling on him. I'm going to say live underdog spot here for Hernandez in a fight that could be close. It could be competitive. Um, but for this line, man, like this mm. is a big line for Carlos Hernandez. And then last but not least, because it's like greasy theory more than anything. But if you look at Carlos Hernandez's last two fights, Canadian Series and UFC debut, they're both split decisions, right? They're close. They're competitive. Could go either way. Kid gives a good account of himself. Split decisions. When you look at Nassimeno, all three of his career losses, sorry, three of his his last three career losses are all by split decision. Yeah. All of his losses in his career are by decision, all five of them. But the last three are by split. So it's a subjective fight. What do you like more? The guy that's throwing up submissions and trying to cling on to him? Or are you looking for the guy that's landing those strikes? You know, uh, Nassimeno with those leg locks against uh, Jake Hadley, they look good, great leg lock attempts, but did anything stick? No. So it's going to be a subjective fight that's close, that's competitive, 
And for that reason, I think there is value on the underdog. I think he could squeak this one out. I think he could win a uh, decision. So I will take Hernandez as like, you know, that the big underdog play of the card, considering you know as well as I do, 2023 is going to start off just like 2022 ended. One of these guys is looking to shit in the apple pie. The difference is I got to figure it out a lot better in 2023. So that's the mission. Hopefully this is the one. I like where your head's at there. Um, I'm not going to argue against you too much when you pick, uh, when Cody picks underdogs. They, uh, they tend to be in pretty good spots. I backed uh, Hernandez against Altamirano. It was like pick him when I got in. And, uh, yeah, he did exactly what he had to do in that fight. Uh, the big concern for him is, you know, the takedown takedown defense seems to be pretty bad. Like, either that contender series fight, he got taken down five times by Barrez. Like, not really exactly a big-time wrestler. And then Altamirano is insane, though, man. What's that? That dude was insane, though, man. That was that fight was an absolute scrap. Yeah, like, and he he hadn't fought in three years. Baez, I didn't know. I didn't know he was made that many improvements. But I hear what you're saying. This is gonna be live and die by the takedown. Yeah, I have Alan Nascimento mixed in on those prize picks um, over one and a half takedowns. I think he's gonna be trying to get it to ground uh, early and often. Wrestling isn't exactly great. I kind of just scattershotted those uh, to get invested into it. But um, Nascimento at minus 330. Yeah, there's really no meat on the bone. This line is definitely you're buying high on him coming off of a win over Hadley, um, which was a good win in its own right. But yeah, it's he is an excellent grappler. If he's able to get it to the mat, he's going to hold position. And control you there. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe Hernandez is a black belt in BJJ, but I may be wrong on that front. Not that he's going to submit him, but that he could stay out of trouble and not get submitted if he does get taken. And then he'll work him. Yeah. And yeah. then I think he wins. Yeah, definitely wins. As long as this fight's on the feet, he should he should have the much better boxing. Definitely has the better volume. I like where where your head's at there. I may add Carlos Hernandez to my ticket. Um, I think he's a good all around fighter, which most you know a lot of people. In the 125 pound division, it's just like they're all. If you're 120, if you can cut down to 125 pounds, you better be good at every aspect of mixed martial arts because the NFL is not calling, NBA is not calling, no other professional league outside of MMA uh, gives you a platform like this to uh, make money as a tremendous athlete. So that's why you know the you know, flyweight division. When you watch it, it's just like all of these guys are incredible. Um, yeah, NBA is not calling. Unless you're Muggsy Bogues, uh, if you're you know five foot four, five foot five. Nate Robinson. It is short sism, as uh, as some people out there would say, but it is what it is. That's just the the nature of professional sports. All right, we got Daniel Argetta taking on Nick Aguirre. Argetta minus six hundred favorite. Aguirre is plus four twenty five. Argetta is, you know, he was supposed to, or this is like a late, very, very late notice replacement he's taking on here. He was supposed to take on, what was the guy's name again? Dolgarian, which I, that was a banger (laughs) fight. I was really looking forward to it. Dolgarian looked good on contender series. I'd done tape for this. Um, And Argetta, um, I thought he held his own pretty well against Damon Jackson. A lot of people are, you know, high up on Damon Jackson. It's just like, Argetta was right in that fight the entire time. The one thing I will say is that he's very, very thick, but like he was seemed so outsized against Damon Jackson. And I know that Argetta used to fight at 135 
in a lot of his previous fights. Um, maybe he's just grown out of that division. I'm not entirely sure. Um, he's on the Ultimate Fighter, lost to uh, Ricky Tercios uh, way back when. But this guy's super, super strong. And he's taking on Aguirre, who I watched a few of his fights. Seems to be another B- BJJ guy. Has some decent setups, but he's fighting low-level guys. I think the big problem for him here is that he's going to really struggle in terms of like the overall power and strength um, that Argetta brings to the table. And um, on the feet, while it's not technical, Argetta is going to be landing the much more uh, impactful shots. But minus 600 for a guy who's very, very un- un- unproven, untested. It's not going to be getting any of my money. I think Argetta wins, but uh, I'm probably going to just sit this one out. What about you, buddy? Yeah, actually, there's Nick, the Nick Fiore and Nick. Uh, uh, how do you? I, I don't know. I, I think the Anthony Pettis broadcasters were saying Aguirre, Aguirre. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Nick and Nick. Are they both nicknamed Slick Nick? It seems like the easy cop out. Oh, the only guy doesn't have a nickname, and one of them's called Slick Nick. Okay, yeah, sounds about right. Um, yeah, this is the exact same thing. There used to be a time where, like you said, UFC caliber, UFC ready. Uh, back in the day, back 2006, back 2005, when I first like jumped into MMA, this is the shit I want. This is what I want to do with my life. Basically, the barometer was you had to beat an ex UFC guy. So some dude would get cut, didn't matter who it was. Some guy would get cut. UFC veteran, you would beat him on your regionals. That was your ticket to go in. In later years, it started being an LFA title. You know, you win an LFA title, that was your ticket in. You know, win that regional belt, you'll come over. Now, there's no rhyme or reason. So what happens is, is guys realize, I can fight Jay Ellis twice. I can fight guys with losing records and build up a 6-0 record, 7-0 record, and then just go to the UFC. So why would you take that tough fight on the regional scene, right? But what ends up happening is you get to the UFC. Now it's time to take that tough fight. And you ain't ready for it, man. You're not ready for it because you haven't had to jump up. That's what I'm seeing out of Aguirre. Same thing. As an amateur, kid was pretty good, right? He was 6-0, finished the majority of those in the first round. As a pro, pretty good. Keep in mind, 0-2 Cordy Sheave. Sean Jordan, 1-1. Drew Henry. Drew Henry. This is your third fight. Don't you want to step it up a little bit? No. No. Shout out to my boy Tim Loy, by the way. 1-1. 0-0. 2-1. It's like, holy crap, man. When are you going to step it up? And so this was interesting to me. I couldn't actually find the fight. I wanted to. But, uh, but first uh, career fight, first round finish, first round rear naked choke, first round TKO, first round triangle choke, minute nine strikes, first round guillotine choke. That's the Anthony Pettis one. You can watch that on Fight Pass. He's got an excellent duck under to the takedown. Seems like he's fast and athletic. But it's like, what about when someone presents him some resistance? And so I couldn't find the fight. But that fight with Brandon Clawson, it's the first time he's fought a guy with like a couple wins under his belt. First guy mm-hmm. with an actual record. He's four and two. And he don't finish him in the first round. He takes him in the second round. So to me, this is he's finally taken on a little bit better of an opponent. And you're seeing it's not as easy as it normally is. He's had to fight for a little bit. I'd love to find that one. I'm going to try to find that one. Just I, I couldn't find Daniel Argueta, meanwhile, you're right. He's the LFA 135-pound champion. But if you've seen him, like even the Marion Santos fight, he shaves his head. He's got a beautiful, long, luscious mullet. And he shaves it to make weight. Like he, he troubles... He struggles to make 135. So when he fought Damon Jackson in the UFC, 145 because it's short notice, I felt like 145 was the direction he was headed anyways. Speaking of wrestling, he did go to the University of Wisconsin Parkside, wrestled there, I believe it was a D2 program, and was like a pretty solid wrestler. In all of his MMA fights, 
he looks to him and just put uh, imply his wrestling, 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 grind these guys up against the cage, grind them down, wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. Uh, the Diego Silva fight, it's for the LFA title. Again, you can watch these fun and fight pass. He gets the takedowns. He grinds them up against the cage, but he does not look good in the open field. He's not a good striker. He's one of these guys that might be able to get away with striking on the basis of aggression, on the basis of being a raw, kind of like a Darren Elkins. If you're coming forward and you're willing to engage, you can rough guys up, but technically not all that good. His leg kicks pretty much naked for the most part. He doesn't really set them up. His head doesn't move too good side to side. His hands low. He's got good cardio. He's fought five rounds, but sometimes his body language screams, you know, I need a minute or so to just kind of regather myself and they'll try to skirt away to the outside. I think he's good. I just don't think he's great. Now, if I with Damon Jackson was by far the best he's ever looked and he took the fun on short notice, but it's important to note, here's a guy that's a wrestler that's made his career based on wrestling you know he wrestled in in, in university he comes to uh, mma he's wrestling 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 and then that fight with damon jackson even though it was short notice and even though technically he's up a weight class sorry what do you get taken down five times was it i just want to confirm no, no i guess he only got gave up okay sorry my bad he gives up the two takedowns and then he can't get back up ten and a half minutes of control time from damon jackson once he gets those two takedowns so just bear with me because this is potentially your other apple pie shitter we know the guy can scrap. We know the guy's talented. The one area where he's not all that good is off of his back. He doesn't have a great get-up game. And again, you can go back and watch his LFA fights. Um, the last one, I think, is Diego Silva. He gets a caught uh, kick caught early in the first round. He falls to his back. He accepts the position. Sure, he tries to isolate an arm here and there. He tries to shift his hips here and there. But for the most part, his get-up game not that good. Now, luckily for him, Next round, he starts standing, and he starts getting the takedowns. He ties at his opponent. My worry here is that we don't know, know enough about Nick Aguilar that he might be able to get this fight to the ground. Mm -hmm. If he does get this fight to the ground, his jiu-jitsu looks like it's pretty good. It so does. if he can get a few takedowns, hold him down, scramble, make him work, this line is way off. This mm -hmm. line is, oh, the other guy I never heard of, he's coming on short notice, and he's fought a bunch of bums. But that's not always the whole story, so... Whereas I think Rebecca smashes. Rebecca is battle tested and proven. This is not quite the same, right? I got an opponent here in Daniel Argueta who's actually just 0 1 in the UFC and, uh, you know, technically fighting up a weight class. The last thing, I don't know if this means anything at all. It might not. But like, Aguirre has been fighting pro for one year. Like, this is, he's not even two years as a pro. But look at these weight classes he's fought at 140, 136. 140, 140, 149, 135, and then his last one's at 145. <clears throat> so I, yeah, I, I, I have no. Is he going to be small? Is this a guy that could cut to 135 all the time, but he fights can, so he's just not cutting at I mean, all, or he looks he's got something skinny. up his sleeve? He looks yeah, skinny. Yeah, and if that's like, the case, like, and he's Argetta's, not wrestling exchanges, he's in trouble. Argetta's definitely like, like he's built. Like the guy's jacked. Yeah, oh yeah. Like there's gonna be a must, like a massive. It's just you know sometimes it's just technique and uh, yeah his his technique like it, it doesn't look like so so bad. I I'm with you that I think like minus six hundred I would not touch that with a with yeah. a ten foot pole. Like that just seems too unproven. Like if this fight was on LFA, you know it's it's not this. It's not this scenario. It's probably more like a. Minus 300 plus 250 type of fight, if that, maybe even less. So, 
Um, yeah, definitely interest. It's the short notice, I suppose. That is a little bit like, what is this Aguirre? We don't have very much information on Aguirre whatsoever, or Aguirre, or whatever the heck you want to call him. I'll find out on Saturday when uh, when uh, when they say it on the broadcast. They they yeah. they tend to get it right. Uh, moving on down, we've got Charles Johnson taking on Jimmy the Brick Flick, minus three thirty. Johnson plus two seventy. Uh, for Flick, Flick coming, like Flick had retired and then uh, he was supposed to fight on this card, um, was supposed to take on uh, Ali Abdelaziz. It feels like forever ago because, I mean, there haven't been fights for, supposed to take on, uh, sorry, Jeff Molina. Um, obviously, Molina gets suspended due to Kraus um, and being in some way, shape or form. I don't have all the details, but connected to that. We will find out, obviously, in the future what that connection was all about. And, you know, the little thing in the back of my head, Cody, I was saying to myself, I'm like, what is the brick, Jimmy the Brick Flick, coming back to take on Molina? Like, that seems weird. Is he just going to accept a bag or something? But, like, uh, James Lynch, former uh, co-worker of mine and yours, like, he did an interview with Flick. Flick's been getting ready since July. Um, for his return to the octagon, um, the one book that like opens up all of those, all of the lines, they opened it up pretty close to a pick 'em, I believe, and they didn't have limits like they usually do. So there's been crazy line movement on this one. There was minus one thirty-seven Johnson. There's a bunch of guys who absolutely smashed it within half an hour. It was down to 375. It took a journey down to minus 550, Charles Johnson. And that's when I paid attention and I said, Charles Johnson's wrestling isn't all that great. Um, you know, he's taken down 12 times by, uh, by Makayev. He was taken down uh, last time out against Zalgis in mostly a striking fight, but he was taken down once. He's got a striking advantage here for sure, but... If Jimmy Flick is in half decent shape, I scooped up some plus 385 and plus 420. When people asked me why I was doing that, I said I probably would line this based on like Jimmy having time off. I'd probably line this more like minus 300 plus 250. The market seems to have corrected itself. I don't know if there's too much value on Jimmy Flick. Maybe we'll see some more at weigh-ins, but um, I think this is the guy that could actually, if he sticks to a game plan, you know, high school wrestler, great grappling when he does get it to the mat. I think he could present, present some real problems for Charles Johnson here. So I got really, really good numbers on Jimmy Flick because of, you know, a massive overreaction in the market. It's starting to correct itself. I still see a plus 300 out, out there. If you haven't got in and you're actually interested in this fight, I don't think that's a very bad look. I think uh, Johnson, based on like the holes in his wrestling game that we have seen, um, that presents an opportunity for uh, for Flick to pull an upset here. Um, that uh, if this fight just turns into a striking affair, it's not even going to be remotely competitive. But uh, I think Jimmy the Brick's coming out to uh, to take him down and and work him on the ground. Hopefully, for my bankroll's sake, that's what plays out. But yeah, I mean, yeah, minus 300 plus 250, I think is probably about accurate for how I would have lined, lined the fight. Um, what's your take here? Yeah, yo, tell them the brick such a, Yeah, tell his the videos used to be the best, man. Yeah. He had sponsors. 
great to see him back fighting and he can make some great content again. Um, Listen, Jimmy Flick, he's got a submission game. He's got a wild submission game. Most of his career wins, obviously, coming by that form. BJJ Black Belt, opportunistic guy. And, uh, you yeah, know, funny fan favorite type of guy. But, yeah, I, I, I never really been too high on Jimmy Flick. I don't really see a whole lot of depth to his game other than his submission game. His wrestling, really not all that good. His striking, not all that good. And his cardio and his chin, really not all that good. Keep in mind, all of his career losses, he's pretty much been chin-checked, right? First career loss to Will Capizano, knocked out 26 seconds into round two, right? Fight with Tim Sosa, knocked out. Against Levy Moles, minute 27 into round two. Chris Gutierrez, who's not a big power puncher, knocks him out into round three. At least he made it to round three there. Ray Rodriguez, 15 seconds into round two. So his chin's not all that good. He actually hasn't given up a whole lot of first-round knockouts, but once his submissions don't stick in the first, he does roll over and die. Now, he's on a good little run here where he's been snagging the submissions and people love cheering for the guy and it's crazy in a flying triangle here and there, but it doesn't take away from the fact that his striking is not all that good. Now, in order to have great jiu-jitsu, you ought to be able to get the fight consistently to the ground. It looked for a minute like maybe his wrestling had made enough improvements. He uh, debuts in the Contender Series against Nate Smith. Now, keep in mind, Jimmy Flick is, uh, I guess he was even money in that fight with Nate Smith. <clears throat> Nate Smith blows his knee out in the first round, still makes it to the third round, survives six submission attempts, and finally got stuck on the seventh one. And if you have a computer in front of you, go ahead and click on Nate Smith. Yeah, he lost his next three <laughs> fights in a row after that, right? So Nate Smith's not good. Mm -hmm. I don't know who needs to hear it, but he's not. But Jimmy submits him, and Jimmy throws up a bunch of submission attempts. So just like that, he's in the UFC. Now in his debut against Cody Durden, he's losing, Paul. Paul, he's losing. His striking looks awful. Durden takes him down, he gets back up, he grabs a hold of him, and he throws up a flying triangle. It was dope. It was dope. It was dope. And I had to pit Jimmy Flick. Because remember, the fight got booked. I picked Durden. It got canceled. They rebooked it. I switched to Flick. Flick subs him. Great moment. But it's like he understood where he was at, and he retires right away. And it's like, well, why'd you retire? It's like, oh, man, you know, I want to spend time with my family, and I need an actual job with actual pension, and I need to get paid money. And now you're sitting on the sidelines, and Oh, yeah, geez, I guess I could make a quick buck fighting again. You're going to jump back in there. And now you're going to take on Jeff Molina. And that one's weird. And I'm not going to throw any greasy fire or greasy gas under the greasy fire. But for the record, Missouri and Oklahoma border as states. So what's up? They probably know each other. Yeah, I would say Charles Johnson's going to put a straight up beating on him. Now, here's the thing with Charles Johnson. Yeah, takedown defense issues. Okay. But keep in mind this. Never been finished in his entire career. <clears throat> First, uh, never been submitted in his entire career. First loss, Sean Santella. Sean Santella is a BJJ black belt under Jim Miller. He's an excellent Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. He has excellent top control, excellent submissions. He takes down and neutralizes Charles Johnson, but he could not submit him. The other loss that he has, the next loss, I guess I should say, was, where was he at? There's another Brandon BJJ Brandon Royval. Brandon Royval. So Brandon Royval is dope on the ground. He's got excellent submissions. He's very, very crafty. He's very, very quick. He's able to take Charles Johnson down and win that way. But again, Charles Johnson's takedown defense checks out. And then his last fight against Makayev, yeah, he gets taken down nine times, 10 times, 11 times. His takedown defense is an issue. But his submission defense is not the issue. So if Flick does manage to take him down, and by the way, Jimmy Flick is not those guys. If he did manage to take him down, I think Charles Johnson's going to be okay. Well, assuming he shaves off that nub at the back of his yeah, head of hair, that's a, that's that like a, bun. That's a problem, bro. 
What are you putting that on there for? Are you taking on Jimmy Flick? If he's got anything he can grip, it's going to be dangerous. But assuming he shaves that thing off, I think his submission defense is good enough that he survives the first round. In the second round, the third round, Jimmy Flick's going to be tired. His takedowns are not going to be coming as quickly. He generally gets knocked out in the second round. Charles Johnson's going to find this guy, and he's going to open him up. I'm betting Charles Johnson by a knockout. I'm betting Charles Johnson round two at plus 500. Charles Johnson round three at plus 900. He's going to tire him out. And no guy that's ever taken Charles Johnson down has held him down. Guys have taken him down a pile of times. The best aspect of his game is his get-up game. The dude's always getting back up. That's something that Makayev will just chain wrestle over and over and over again. Jimmy Flick not necessarily going to do that. He needs to get him down and submit him right away. Because even Nate Smith survived the first six of them, right? If this guy survives a few of them and gets back up, you're getting toasted here. So Charles Johnson, a great athlete, someone who was slow getting into MMA, boxed for a little bit, went to Thailand for a little bit. He's finally putting it all together. And as much as I thought he did rob Zalga Zumagulov his last time out, Zalga's probably stiffs Jimmy Flick in the first three minutes. So, uh, yeah, I, I got to go with Charles Johnson. Now, I didn't agree on the line that it was set at. Oh, if I was a CLV soft opener, $150 limit kind of guy, I would have hammered it on nine different there accounts. There was no well. limits. That's a great There was, like, basically was no limits. Limit? That's, what, that's why that's it moved so that's hard. Great. And that's why that's I jumped in. I jumped in on the other side because I'm like, this looks like they're just... Yeah, and the line has landed where I thought was probably fair. I jumped in on the other side. I'm like, I'm just gonna yeah. buy these guys hedge because I know that's what they're doing. Like they, they grab the big, the big side. They're gonna make the, they're gonna take Johnson and they're gonna make it, um, you know, a risk free type of situation for themselves. I bought some of their hedge essentially is what happened. I think the well, line yeah. is pretty close to accurate right now. I agree with a, a whole bunch of your points. But, yeah, the, the it went up to plus 420, and, you know, I, I'm about that life. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to double dip on this. I had a plus 385 and a plus 420 um, just because I figured that this – yeah, they were overreacting to get more money back on the flick side to get it back to normal, which I think it's pretty fair right about now. If this turns into a kickboxing match, like flick – yeah, just throw throw all my flick monies away, like – we don't got a shot. You got to get takedowns. You got to get them early. And you got to be fishing for submissions. At the very least, like, if you're not able to get submissions, you need to be getting a whole bunch of top control and, and holding it. Because when we're on the feet, we're losing this fight. Um, so, yeah, Johnson for you. I'm going to pick for, I mean, I'll pick Flick. Whatever pick means. I'm already invested in it at a much better price. Uh, finally, we got Sarge Eubanks taking on my girl, Cab. Eubanks, a minus 230 favorite. Cab can be had for plus 195. You know that, you know, first fight back, first card back. I'm going to have to back my girl, Cab. Um, it's a tough matchup. Don't get me wrong. Don't get it twisted. I got like 0.25. What would be 0.25 units for slightly more than 0.5 units uh, for people who speak in that unit type of talk? Um, not very invested in it, but uh, if the fight stays standing, my girl's my girl catch a beating is absolutely a dog. She is throwing with ill intent. Um, obviously, she is insanely, insanely durable. Um, the grappling is a, uh, a big red flag and it's always been a problem. She gets taken down. She gets taken down quite easily. It's like, if you watch like Jillian Robertson, 
uh, the, the takedown that she got, uh, you know, that led to like the end of that fight was very, very rudimentary. It wasn't anything, anything crazy. Uh, you know, Mazani was able to take her down four times. I have Eubanks on my prize picks for over one and a half takedowns um, because it's, it is so easy to take Ketchawara down. Um, but if this fight's on the feet, uh, Cachoeira is completely live in this fight. I think the line is kind of nuts. Like I would not, it's a dogger pass type of situation. I'm getting invested because I pretty much bet Cachoeira every single time she goes out there. Cause I know she's going to go out there and fight for my money. I would not suggest whatsoever putting very much stock in a minus two thirty. Sajara Eubanks minus 265 and minus 250s in some other spots on the market right now so um it's like the Pat Mayo special special here Cody it's a big big underdog women's fight take the dog in this situation this dog's gonna fight for 15 minutes as long as she doesn't get subbed yeah, yeah, I think your best bet is to live bet this thing after the first round because if you lose in the first round, well, no harm done. But um, Sarge Eubanks wins pretty much most first rounds. Like, if you look at her losses, she wins the first round in the vast majority of them. Um, the Betchkoheya fight starts off really good, gases out, ends up losing it. The Ketlin Vieira fight, the, more notably, the Penny Kianzad fight, Melissa Gatto, same thing. It's like she'll get that early takedown against Penny Kianzad. Round starts, she takes her down. As soon as she's on top, Penny can't do nothing about it. Round ends, it's very easily one nothing. Eubanks. The commentary team's like, listen, Penny knows if she gets taken down, she can't get back up. So she needs to make a concentrated effort to keeping it on her feet. And then Penny's all of a sudden putting a beat in on Eubanks. Wrestling's non-existent at that point. Striking, she keeps with it, but not enough. So she loses the Penny Kianzad fight. And then, yeah, the Melissa Gatto fight was much of the same. Like, she actually did win the first round. She gets the takedown. She neutralizes her. She's got good top control. The second and the third round, she can't get her wrestling going anymore. And she ends up getting hoofed for the body in the third and then tumbles over. So the problem with Sinjara Eubanks is, again, she seems to be a one-round fighter. She's got excellent top control, excellent jiu-jitsu, but about one round to physically make it effective. Priscilla Cachoeira, yeah, terrible takedown defense. Yeah, we all know it. But she can fight for 15 minutes. And she fights hard for 15 minutes. And to me, I feel like that's going to be, you know, a big thing here. Not only that, but Priscilla Cachoeira's last fight, she looks career best, against Ariane Lipsky, knocks her out in a minute at 135 pounds. Sinjara Eubanks, meanwhile, her last fight against Melissa Gatto, she wins the first round, gasses out. We know the story I just told you. but She missed weight, 127.5. Mm-hmm. If you look at the vast majority of her fights, she misses weight. She struggles to make weight. She got kicked off the Ultimate Fighter for missing weight. She one time shaved her dreadlocks to make weight. She does not cut weight particularly well. Now she's 37 years old. She's going to suddenly make 125 and fight for a hard 15 minutes. Yeah, I'm really not so sure about that. And I hear people keep saying, yeah, but man, what if she does what she did to Elise Reed? Elise Reed fights at 115. She's a straw weight. Eubanks can't make 125. She is a bantamweight. Yeah, yeah, that one fight, she looked really good. I think against Cachoeira, if you take her down, which many people have done, you know, Shevchenko needed to, to dribble her head off the canvas for, you know, a couple rounds. She's durable enough that I think if she gets taken down in the first, she survives it. And if she gets caught in a rear choke, well, at least she's going to not fight for your dollar. But she'll eye gouge you. She will eye gouge the dollar <laughs> to save it, okay? Whatever she needs to do to save your money, 
she'll at least give you that. And that so a, I like her. I, I was like her, 459. Man. And Jillian Robertson recently has been doing like jujitsu tournaments. Like that's a world class. Like she's a very, very good jujitsu practitioner. It's like if we got very, out of very good. If we got out one more second, she was trying to gouge her eyes out just to try to get out of that choke. If we got out of that, who knows how that fight plays out? Um, yeah, I always back her just because. Um, yeah, I mean, I've she's always a big underdog. She fights for your money. She's uh, she's super super aggressive. She hits very very hard. Um, the grappling isn't great, and we know what we're getting involved in. I only did like a very small pregame wager because my plan is to try to attack this live. I expect Eubanks to get some takedowns, particularly early in this fight. Maybe one, maybe two. Um, I see a lot of people saying like, "Oh, Eubanks, you know, Eubanks gases Cachoeira is gonna knock her out." I'm not so sure. Like the deeper I think about that, it's like Eubanks tires out and then she becomes ineffective but like her durability is held up against some really decent competition outside of the gato fight last time out you know she went the distance with ketlin Vieira, uh julia avila aspen lad like it's not easy to finish uh sajara eubanks whatsoever so i'm not loving it particularly because the market right now for it it's like uh, the books have set it up that like, oh, it's it's Keshawera round three. And it's just like it's plus 800 for her to win by that. So like I'd rather just take like the plus 200 money line um, and then maybe add more after round one. If if the fight is playing out the way that I think it is or the way I kind of foresee it, take like the money line. Um, you may get like a plus 400 if she gets taken down and spends most of the time on her back, but survives. So yeah. Catch aware for me, catch aware for you. Yeah, honestly. So this goes back to Eubanks versus Penny Kianzad is that when they announced the decision and they announced that Penny had won the fight, Eubanks looks over like just astonished that she got outstruck 92 to 52 and had lost this fight. How did I lose this fight? Like she's complacent at times and she sits there. And gets hit. So, yeah, I, I would say that it's going to be come down to the subjective nature of the judges. The judges might say, well, Eubanks got some takedowns and held her up against the cage. But it's going to be Priscilla Cachoeira coming forward and mixing it up the way she does. And she, If you look at the Gina Mazzani fight, controlled easily in the first round. Taken down at will in the first round. And then, if anything, she just is tenacious, stays on it, batters her and finishes her. Well, bum opponent, you'll say. Fair enough. The Ji Young Kim fight. Yeah, I disagree that she actually won that fight. But do you know what won her that fight? When there was a minute left in the tight, close, competitive fight, and she just starts smashing Ji Young Kim with elbows. Oh, my God. She just came forward reckless abandoned. That stole the round back. She fought and dug deep in the last minute and then knocks out lip skier last time out. Like, the power is there, but... People don't need to understand. All they need to understand is Paul's relationship with Cachoeira as being this. He never bet her against Valentina Chechenko because he's not brain dead. He had Molly McCann over her. And in the third round, remember, Molly McCann's eyes all the way shut. And Cachoeira is still storming oh, yeah, forward. If that's, if Dr. almost stopped that fight. This, my girl's built, built for five-round fights. Right. I, this is meatballs, the best, meatball's getting dusted in the fourth round if we get, to, uh, if we get out of that round. It doesn't go to a fourth round. They look at her and they I say, know. do you see how many fingers I'm holding, mate? And she's like, nah, mate. And it's like, do you see how many pints I'm holding? And she's like, oh, yeah, three. Because she's got a better sense of that. <laughs> but 
The Carolina fight was bad. And she, there, she put bad. herself in some bad situations. She got, you know, she was in some like tight submission situations against someone who's not exactly like a world class grappler. Not a great spot, but like that's 2019. I think she's made a lot of improvements from. She's won four of her last five fights, Cody, and she's an underdog every single time. It's. Well, see, that's that's what I was going to say is that, you, you know, she don't know you nothing. I would ride with her the same way. You cast her against Shayna Dobson plus 175. You cast her versus Gina Mazzani at plus 190. You cast her versus Ji Yun Kim at plus 135. And you cast her against Ariana Lipsky at plus 135. She's yep. had four wins in the UFC. All four times they've given you underdog money. More often than not, you've actually hit the KO prop on it because, you know, she's going to go for it. So she's someone that's been in these spots and thrives and comes through and keeps fighting. And this is how amazing this girl's career has been. She's 34 years old, okay? Her wins are Shayna Dobson, Gina Mazzani, Jun Yun Kim, and Ariane Lipsky. So she has no notable wins. No. She's 34, and I think she's 4-4 four and four in the UFC, okay? And yet she cashed... Uh, um, she's cashed three performance bonuses in her career, right? She had a KO of the night against Shayna Dobson. She had a... Fight of the night against Jay Young Kim. She her disclosed pay from her last fight with Ariana Lipsky is forty and forty, and she won. Okay, she's making almost a hundred thousand dollars a fight, ball. Oh my god! For someone who just comes forward and just bombs on you, there is a market for entertainment. This girl has coined the market. I have never bet on her. She's probably going to lose as a result of me betting her for the first time. But you know what? It, this is a good spot for her, so I'm not going to deny that. What I will say is. For these shows, we got to give you the pre-fight flop. Pre-fight flop, I'm going to take Priscilla Cachuera. But the smart play is betted after the first round. This mm-hmm. is an excellent live betting situation. And that's why I didn't get too invested in it beforehand because I expect round one to be rough, and she could get finished in round one. Like I'm not, I know the limitations that she has in her game. But if we get through five minutes, game on, Cody. Game on. Game on. Um, yeah, this week, what I've got, I've got Ige, Umar, Rebecca, Parlay, plus 167. That's to win one unit. Flick and uh, Flick money line, I've got 0.5 units total um, at plus 385 and plus 420. I think that's to win, uh, like, what would be two units. And then uh, Kachawera, uh 0.25 units to win just slightly over 0.5. For people who uh, who do that, that's how I kind of I, I generally bet everything pretty much straight. Like it's always to win the same amount of money. So when I bet underdogs, I'm betting a little bit less on it. When I if you see me betting like big favorites, I mean I have a, he- a hefty investment into that number. So. Yeah, the card's not completely done yet, obviously. There's a few spots I'm uh, interested in. Going to watch weigh-ins. Going to kind of, you know, see more props and that type of stuff that open up over the course of the week. But that's what I'm on right now. Hit him with the PRP, Cody. Hit him with the PRP. We're going to go Sean Strickland, even money. Dan Ige, almost even money, if you can believe that. God, that's going to be value, I think. Anyways, Roman Coppola is going to be dog number one. Ketlin Vieira, there's a lot of near, near even money plays, eh? Uh, we're going to go with Umar Nurmagomedov. Fight goes the distance is your better play there. I'm going to take Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, another even money play. Rebecca, uh, Basharat, I really like him this week. Carlos Hernandez is going to be my dog number two. And then Charles Johnson and Priscilla Cachuera, dog number three. So 
12 fights, three underdogs. The underdogs actually, Priscilla Cachoeira plus 200, as well as, sorry, um, Carlos Hernandez at plus 280. Like, if we can get even just one of those underdogs, the value is certainly there. In terms of the big favorites, I agree with most of them. Just, I know one of them's going to blow it. Hopefully, I'm not on overexposed there. I would agree with Paul's assessment. I think the value, best value is probably Dan Ige. So, he's going to be used to juice up a bunch of tickets. Um, also, playing. I'm, Umar Nurmagomedov just is not adding enough for me, and I think around he's pretty dangerous. But yeah, Matus Rebecki, uh, Javi Basharov for myself personally, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna have that Charles Johnson. I'm gonna have that Charles Johnson. No, Paul doesn't agree with that, but you know between those three four plays, you could put Sean Strickland in there if you want to hedge it at the end of the night. But yeah, I think in 2023 it's like less is more, right? You don't have to play every single fight. Of course, the PRP is gonna include every single fight, but maybe more focus on that top line. Who are your two best plays? Who are your maybe three best plays? Keep it to that. And uh, when you get those cards where you're like, I love six of these guys, then you're going to hit the bigger parlays, right? But on these greasier cards, first one back, everyone's antsy. Everyone are so antsy, they're just like betting LFA mm -hmm. hard, right? And it's like, man, who do you like on this one? It's like, bro, I can tell you, the one guy's 2-0 and oh, and the other guy's 2-1. and one. You do not want to bet this. And then sure enough, the first two fights on the card last week or the last LFA, they're both like plus 230 underdogs. And they both cash, right? No rhyme or reason. Greasy regionals. Things are going to happen. Unless you physically live there and know these guys, maybe stay away. The worst UFC card is the best PFL card. It's the best, you know, LFA card. Just because you think it's that much better doesn't mean you got to bet all these spots, right? No. Maybe just, it's there's going to be what, 52 cards this year, give or take? 50 yeah. maybe? If I mean, if you, off, if you count, like, two weeks contend, if you count, weeks count contender series, you're, yeah, definitely oh, around yeah. 50 or... Even and Bellator more. and PFL and Eagle FC, I hear is banned from the United States. But, you know, stuff's going to pop up and you're going to have over 100 fights to bet on, 100 cards to bet on, sorry. So, yeah, there's going to be lots of opportunities. For this card itself, we just talked about the three or four best plays that we like. Try to pair to that. But, of course, I've been trying to hit the PRPs. This is what we do, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. Hope for the best this opening week. And uh, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's too bad of an offering. We're just going to need the bounces that we need to go our way. Indeed, 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 sir. All right. Good talking to you again, buddy. I missed it. Yeah, man. It feels uh, like, I don't know, I would say vacation, but the three weeks was good. Just do something different, right? Find yep. something else to do. Unfortunately, like starts off mad Twitter drama, which we're not going to talk about, but uh, man, Phil Baroni killed somebody like, no. My favorite fighter of all time is the New York badass. Phil Dana White's so. getting caught slapping his wife while he's in yeah, Cabo. He killed somebody. I mean, the I'm never dark, gonna see him again. The if dark Dana, side of again, M but. you take fights away from people. You take fights away from these <laughs> yeah. heathens, and this is what happens. Like I don't know. I mean, there's obviously a dark side to like to all of it. I mean, yeah, you know the the fights in Russia and stuff. There's always weird stuff going on with that. It's uh, it's a crazy sport that we decide to support here with some real, real sketchy characters. But uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. And until further notice, I feel like we're we're two of the good guys still. So uh, not that I, actually, I hate saying that people who always have to constantly tell you that they're the good guys tend to be hiding that something. Is. So you know what? I'm not even. Yeah. Retract that last statement. Uh, we stick to ourselves. We do our thing. And um, 
I wouldn't have it any other way, buddy. It's uh, it's been what like ten years that we've kind of been, you know, since we were in school, and I think we started doing some podcasts that nobody had ever actually seen. And we've had some good years and bad years. Last year was not a great one, but uh, hoping onwards and upwards uh, for 2023. I have high hopes. Yeah, I think this is our ninth year. This is our ninth year officially, 2023. So you and I, yeah, we went to college and we did Roger Lajoie would be like, talk hockey or whatever. He'd let us talk MMA because he's like, I know you guys don't want to talk about hockey, so go do an MMA podcast and yeah, like we would we would get those reps in and talk MMA for a long time. But the first ever show that me, you, and Kent Carter did was uh, Fight Night 39, Nogueira versus Roy Nelson, right? Yeah. 2014, April 2014. From okay, that so show, eight years. Johnny Johnny Bedford's retired. He won some bare-knuckle boxing. Ronnie Yaya is shockingly still in the UFC. Jim Ayler is now bare-knuckle boxer, retired from MMA. Alan Omer, gone. Talis Latis retired. Trevor Smith retired. Jared Rochalt, PFL maybe. Danny Omelechuk, he's cut. Ranzi Nijem, I'm pretty sure he's retired. Benil Darius is the top contender in the world. Ryan LaFleur retired. John Howard retired. Tatua Kabajir retired. Clay Guida still fights in the UFC. Uh, Roy Nelson and Noguera. So there's two guys. It's a pretty good two guys. Clay Guida holding it down for the OGs. And Benil Darius is the top contender. So, mm-hmm. uh, so much has changed. But, like, I, I've, seen, I've seen prospects come and go have a full career like remember when joanny and jacek debuted and that was my girl and i'd watch her fight on cage warriors and i was like oh she's gonna win remember i was like that was my girl okay she's a no-name prospect who no one could pronounce her last name she goes on a run she wins a title she becomes the goat she makes millions of dollars she loses it all not the money but the you know the prestige falls down the top of the mound and is now like semi-retired her best years are done she had an entire career in the time that we've just been doing shows, man. So, yeah, at 31, so, I don't feel old, but yeah, I feel like I feel like traveled, but hopefully not as traveled as Phil Baroni, because goddamn, <laughs> I didn't put out a tweet because it's like, what could I possibly say? But I'm working on a mixed martial madness video because uh, just all the Phil Baroni stuff with you. He'll just be one of those guys that people forget about and they'll never talk about again. And no, he's a crazy guy that went to jail, and you know all the legendary stories, all the gym wars all the <clears throat> crazy shit that's happening I'll just like people will forget about it i got like a i got like a duty to even though it's a bad legacy i got like a duty to make sure people don't forget about these guys so write a badass episode with the new york babies that's your guy that's your guy yeah so eight years officially that we've been doing this podcast under the banner dogger pass and bookie beat down before this and then yeah there's there was like another two years of like radio roundtables in school so it's been a long run, and uh, hopefully many, many more years ahead of us here, buddy. That is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed this show. For producer Megan and Cody Savick, I'm Paul Shaughnessy, saying goodbye and good luck. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.